0: Christopher bring Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and
1: <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That was great. And, uh, yes. Yeah, so, by the way, I did, uh, of course, I did hype this episode a couple weeks ago, and I said I was going to do it, and, like, the night before, I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure who's Nissa Nissa and who's Azor high." and I had this breakdown, and I had to call the Audible. We did the Weird Compendium episode. It worked out really well. Uh, but with the help of the Mythheads, we did crack the code here, and now I feel very confident about the prologue here, so I'm very excited to bring this to you guys, and we're going to dive right in. So, welcome to We Should Start Back, a reverse reading of the prologue of A Game of Thrones. As even the most casual student of literature knows, the first words of a great novel are generally expected to be loaded with import and meaning. Frequently, the main themes of the story are touched on, and sometimes meta clues about the work itself are found there, too. Such is the case with the first sentences of A Song of Ice and Fire, which are... We should start back, Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The wildlings are dead. The first thing I noticed when taking a hard look at these first two sentences, which comprise the first paragraph of the prologue of A Game of Thrones, is the menacing nature of the woods, which are growing dark around them. Not the night growing dark, but the woods themselves, which are surrounding and enveloping the three rangers. This motif is built upon throughout the prologue, as the trees try to trip up and ensnare our party. And they seem particularly hostile to Sir Waymar, so it's fairly easy to spot this first sentence as the beginning of the Menacing Trees motif. Obviously, trees and the horrors that are hidden in their lore are a major component of A Song of Ice and Fire, so it makes sense that this is one of the very first ideas presented to us. The weirwoods are the ultimate setting of the story, if you will, just as the cosmic world tree they are personifying is typically regarded as the center of the cosmos. Now, one of the horrors hidden in the weirwood lore seem to be the others, and this truth is fairly well spelled out in the prologue. The Menacing Trees idea essentially culminates in the others emerging from the dark of the wood as pale shadows in the night, showing us just why they are sometimes called the White Walkers of the wood. In other words, the Menacing Trees, which seem to have been watching the rangers for days and giving them the heebie-jeebies, are essentially preparing the reader for the moment when these icy tree shadows appear on the page and kill Sir Waymar. A ton of evidence for the White Walkers' connection to the weirwoods, the Green Seers. And The Children of the Forest is found elsewhere as the series develops, but in retrospect, this prologue lays it out pretty well. And it all starts with that first sentence. We should start back, Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The wildlings are dead. Since we took care of the descriptive part of the sentence about the darkening woods, let's isolate Garrett's speech. He says, we should start back. The wildlings are dead. And then a moment later... We have no business with the dead. The general sense conveyed here is one of Lovecraftian terror. As we're about to learn, Garrett and Will are totally picking up on the creepy Others vibe and want to get the hell out of there as fast as possible. They've seen enough, and they're ready to go back home. Garrett is specifically saying, let's go back because we've completed our mission, which was to catch or kill the wildling raiders. But consider this sentence thematically. He's saying that up ahead lies death. And we should start back now while we have the chance. It's ominous foreshadowing. In other words, as death does indeed lie in wait for them ahead in that very clearing where the wildlings died. And this was indeed their last chance to avert their doom. I might add that when they choose to go forward, they aren't just confronting death, but a fate worse than death and a power stronger than death. This is fire of the gods shit, in other words. A confrontation with an otherworldly power, which man was, for the most part, not meant to tussle with. That's why I say this is a Lovecraftian sense of terror being evoked here. Martin is very much mimicking the central conflict of characters in Lovecraft stories, uh, which is terror and insanity in the face of otherworldly powers beyond mankind's comprehension. Garrod shows this the best. He's rendered basically senseless by the time Ned finds him south of the Wall, having inexplicably fled his post after a long career as a faithful ranger of the Night's Watch. All the more poignant, then, that Garrod is the one to try to warn Waymar to start back, instead of going closer to confront Death. Defeating Death is indeed another of the major themes of A Song of Ice and Fire. We see it in the Others and their Whites right here in the prologue, yes, but also in the green Greenseers, like Blood Raven, who outlived their mortal span, both outside and inside the Weirwood Net. In the Undying of Karth, who seem to have long outlived their natural time on the Earth. And we see it with Melisandra, whom George has said to be hundreds of years old. We see it with Beric Dondarian and Lady Stoneheart and Coldhands. And we'll see it again soon with John and perhaps others. No pun intended. Okay, well maybe a little pun intended. But the point is clear. Defeating death is a big part of the story. And it's even baked into one of the prophecies of Azor High Reborn, who is foretold to resurrect those who die fighting in his cause. So taking all that into account, read this bit again. We should start back. The wildlings are all dead. It puts me in mind of resurrection, because when you say we should start back, you are sometimes saying you'd like to press the virtual undo button, that we should go back to the point where we went wrong, or maybe that we've gone too far and should turn around and retrace our steps the way we came. It's almost like Garrett is saying we've come to the point where people have died. Let's turn back around and undo the death. Perhaps I'm reading into things here, but those wildlings were surely whited and raised from the dead. And, of course, Waymar will be whited and raised from the dead at the end of the chapter. And the idea of someone seeing the dead and wanting to press the undo button is, indeed, a thing in A Song of Ice and Fire. Brand's throat was very dry. He swallowed. Winterfell, I was back in Winterfell. I saw my father. He's not dead. He's not. I saw him. He's back at Winterfell. He's still alive. No, said Leif. He is gone, boy. Do not seek to call him back from death. So, from Azor High reborn to young Brandon Stark, the idea of raising the dead is a major deal. And we see a lot of it in this prologue, of course. Well, I've served up the appetizers, so let me tell you what I really think. The most important part of these two sentences is the very first bit. We should start back. Huge credit to Rusted Revolver for keying in on and developing this concept, with an additional thank you to Ravenous Reader and Outer Panda, the Pandouter, for helping to develop the ideas further. And also thanks to any other myth-heads who've been involved in this discussion, who I... Too numerous to name, but you know who you are. So much of what you're about to hear comes from their research and thinking. And in particular, Rusted Revolver has kind of made this start-back thing his baby. And without his insight here this essay would definitely not exist at all. So, Rusted and Ravi were also kind enough to review this essay beforehand and offer their input, so thanks very much, guys. And again, thanks to all the myth heads who helped me work through uh, the confusion of a couple weeks ago and and sort this out. Thanks a lot. Um, So, Amanda, Gretchen, all you guys. Anyways, putting the uh, Rusted Revolver and Ravenous Reader, as I like to say, are putting the RR in George R.R. Martin, so... Thanks to them. Thanks to George Martin. Thanks to Stanley Black for our intro music. Thanks to John Walsh for the flamenco music. Thanks to Painkiller Jane. And thanks to Sanrixian. And thank you all for joining us. So, getting ready to start with the first section. Uh, let me see if we can play music without causing a time vortex. This next section is dedicated to the Long Night's Watch. Sharon Ice Eyes, Dread Ferryman of the North, Wielder of the Staff of the Old Gods, A Weirwood Staff Banded in Valerian Steel. Synxia, Frozen Fire Queen of the Summer Snows and Burner of Winter's Wick. Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck, The Frozen Thunderbolt, Whose Words Are the Way Must Be Tried. And the Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, Jedi of Just Ice, He Who Awaits the Corn King. So we should start back. What's it mean? Well, it seems like Martin's version of another famous first sentence from another famous and highly respected classic of literature, that of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Finnegan's Wake is a legendary and perplexing work of literary genius by most accounts, and much attention is given to its first and last sentence. Here's that first sentence. River Run, past Eve and Adams, from swerve of shore to bend of bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Hoth Castle and environs. The thing is, according to Joyce himself, this is actually the end of the sentence fragment that ends the novel, which is, away, alone, alas, a loved, along the. That's great, right? You finish the book and you're like, it's a sentence fragment. Awesome. Great. Anyways, you put it together, the last sentence and the first sentence, and you get a kind of infinite loop, a novel whose ending flows seamlessly into its beginning. The whole thing is away, alone, alas, a loved, along the river run, past Eve and Adam's, from swerve of shore to bend of bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Howth Castle and environs. I recommend a blog post by Stephen Conger that I have linked uh, in the text version of this essay for a quick breakdown of that first sentence and what it actually means, what Castle is and all that stuff. Uh, But right away, you can see that there is some sort of a recirculation of time and fate thing going on here, with the river and the narrative both bringing the reader back to the spot where they began. It certainly makes you think of Bloodraven's speech about how time is a river and how the weirwoods are not moved by that river, being the time weirs that they are. And one imagines that House Tully's castle named River Run, is probably a nod to Joyce and this first sentence. I'm sure that got your attention. And of course, river Run is a castle built on a river like Joyce's Houth Castle, which is a real castle, by the way. It's equally apparent that the idea of time and history being a loop is another theme Martin was eager to work with in A Song of Ice and Fire, so it makes a lot of sense that he was captivated by Joyce's literary puzzle here and the deeper concept behind it. Martin also expresses this idea of the recirculation of events in a nod to another of his favorite authors, Robert Jordan, author of the Wheel of Time series. The Wheel of Time, as you might guess, if you don't know already, makes heavy use of repeating cycles of history and fate. And Martin calls out to this idea when he calls out to the author. This is from an Asha Greyjoy chapter of A Feast for Crows. Archmaester Rigney once wrote that history is a wheel, for the nature of man is fundamentally unchanging. What has happened before will perforce happen again, he said. I think of that whenever I contemplate the crow's eye. You're on Greyjoy sounds queerly like you're on Grey Iron to these old ears. James Rigney is the real name of Robert Jordan, and so Martin cleverly used the name Rigney here while he's talking about history, time, being a wheel. Some of the main heroes and villains in the Wheel of Time series are actually fairly literal reincarnations of past characters, and in the end, they're primarily concerned with righting the wrongs of events done 3,000 years in the past. Martin has borrowed Many things from Jordan, who Martin admired and respected a great deal, and many of those things have to do with the Wheel of Time idea. For example, Martin's Azor High Reborn is in some sense a less literal version of Robert Jordan's The Dragon Reborn, which is an identity one of the main protagonists wears, and the Dothraki Mother of Mountains is an obvious parallel to Dragon Mount which is a similarly shaped and similarly isolated mountain where this dragon-reborn character both died in the ancient past and is reborn as a baby in the present. Martin has also imagined the deeper concept of cyclical time and historical events as a dragon-shaped Ouroboros, which he placed in the sigil of House Toland of Dorne. The next quote is from an Arian chapter of A Feast for Crows, and you may recognize it. You should. As it is the very first quote in my very first essay, Astronomy Explains the Legends of Ice and Fire. This is Ariane speaking to Ares Oakhart of her fear that her brother desires to steal her birthright as ruler of Dorne. Have you ever seen the arms of House Toland of Ghost Hill? He had to think for a moment. A dragon eating its own tail? The dragon is time. It has no beginning and no ending, so all things come round again. Anders Ironwood is Kristen Cole reborn. He whispers in my brother's ear that he should rule after my father, that it is not right for men to kneel to a woman, that Ariane especially is unfit to rule, being the willful wanton that she is. This is almost Martin allowing us to see behind the curtain here. It's as if Ariane is showing us how to analyze a song of ice and fire. Consider the characters in the main story as parallels of those from history and legend she's telling us because all things come round again. It's a major clue from Martin to us readers and it certainly helped me make sense of what I had found when I discovered Daenerys acting out the Carthene dragons come from the second moon legend even while she fulfills the prophecy of Azor Ahai's rebirth by waking the dragons from stone under a bleeding star. In other words, I found this major clear-cut parallel between this pivotal scene at the climax of the first book and a legend that Daenerys had heard earlier in the book which is also the fulfillment of ancient prophecy and then i read the quote about hastolan's time dragon eating its own tail and it all clicked martin is indeed creating stories that eat their own tail He's weaving parallels between the major events of the ancient past and the current plot, and he's using symbolism and archetypes and metaphorical drama plays in order to do it. This understanding is the backbone of all mythical astronomy research. There you go. It's important to note. One of the most obvious such parallels is probably this very prologue of A Game of Thrones. We don't know it when we first read it, because we haven't heard the story of the Last Hero yet, but Sir Waymar's fight against the Others does, of course, turn out to have clear echoes of the Legend of the Last Hero. It's not a perfect match, but at this point, after reading and rereading the series a few times, as most of us have, we can certainly recognize the idea of a man of the Night's Watch searching deep into the cold dead lands and bravely confronting the Others alone, only to have his sword break from the cold of their magic. This parallel is deepened by the fact that Sir Waymar Royce has many parallels to Jon Snow, the most likely candidate for a recasting of The Last Hero's cold journey into the dead lands to face the others. Here, I will point you to Joe Magician's video on Waymar Royce for further information. And of course, don't forget the great follow-up live stream that he did with myself and Bookshelf Stud. Those are on the Joe Magician YouTube channel. When I'm sure you guys are all subscribed, but if you're not... The mods will drop the link in the chat, and I'll have it in the uh, description of the video afterwards. Point being, uh, Waymar's description matches John's almost perfectly, and that seems to be clearly intentional. Now, Bran does have parallels to the last hero as well, as we've discussed, but consider the simple fact that Waymar is a John parallel, and that John is set up to be a new last hero. It highlights Waymar's last hero-ness, if you will, in this prologue scene all the more. So... We should start back. It's a meta-commentary on how we should treat A Song of Ice and Fire. We should start back on the reread as soon as we finish, just like the reader of Finnegan's Wake. We should start back, and when we do, we should remember that time is a circle, and we should look for repeating events. The Inverted Ballad of the Last Hero This next section is dedicated to our Guardians of the Galaxy, Sir Imriel Jourdain of the Tor, Spinner of the Great Wheel, and Guardian of the Sword of the Morning, Sir Harriston of House Casterly, the Noontide Sun, whose words are deeper than ever, did plummet sound, a Guardian of the Cat. Memo Syme, the poem On Two Feet, Mother of Muses, Rider of the dragon Saga, and Guardian of the Swan, and Baal the Bard, the Purse of Phoenix, wielder of the Valerian Steel Sword, Creep Eater, and Guardian of the Ice Dragon, whose words are from sorrow, wisdom. In addition to looking for repeated events, as we start back on our rereads of a song of ice and fire, we've learned to look for what are called inverted parallels. A thing, place, person, or event that matches another, only flipped around or inverted in some way. The Others and the Black Brothers are a great example of inverted parallels, which is spelled out in this chapter by the way. The Others are twice called watchers, while the Night's Watch are the watchers on the wall. Both are brotherhoods of dudes who either cannot or should not have children. Both are shadows, but the Others are called pale shadows and white shadows, while the brothers are called black shadows. The Others use magical ice weapons, while the Night's Watch ideally uses dragonglass, a magical fire weapon, and so on. In fact, ice and fire are the biggest inverted parallels in the story, as we've discussed extensively in the Moons of Ice and Fire series and elsewhere. Jojen's famous quote encapsulates this perfectly. If ice can burn, then love and hate can mate. George is setting up ice and fire as a yin and yang, but he's also pointing out that there's a bit of yin and yang, and vice versa. Ice can burn, yes, and fire can be frozen, a la Frozen Fire, which is, of course, the name for dragonglass. We don't need to get lost in that discussion, but the point is that this sort of up-and-down, forwards-and-backwards symmetry is found all throughout A Song of Ice and Fire at scales both large and small. And when I say forwards-and-backwards symmetry, I'm actually referring to a deeper truth here. I think by now we all understand that the main events of the Long Night drama involving Azor Ahai, Nisanissa, The Last Hero, and whoever and whatever else, will be echoed in some fashion at the conclusion of A Song of Ice and Fire. And it seems very possible that our heroes will be looking to somehow reconcile the sins of the past with their actions in the present. In other words, it would make sense if we see inverted echoes of the past. That might actually make more sense than repeating the sins of the past, right? It might make more sense to see the events of the past somehow reversed, so that it ends up more like an image in a mirror, identical but flipped around in terms of left to right, or forwards and backwards. We might see uh, perhaps the rolls of ice and fire flipped around, or maybe we could see a female Azor high, like Daenerys, reforge a magic sword with the sacrifice of a male Nissa Nissa, like Drogo, and... Oh wait, we already saw that. Hat tip to ravenous reader for this find. There is indeed a gender-flipped thing going on at the alchemical wedding. Even as Dany is Nissa Nissa, symbolically dying to birth Lightbringer and wandering too close to the fire of her solar king, Kaldrogo, she is also forging Lightbringer, the dragons, in the chest cavity of her dead Kaldrogo, uh, from which the dragons hatch. Dany also inserts the phallic symbol of the burning torch, Jabby Jabby, into the pyre in order to light it, which is another sign of her playing the Azor Ahai role. This gender-flipped layer is more subtle, but it is there. I argued with Ravenous Reader for a little while about it, but uh, I had to give in and defeat. It is there, in fact, and its uh, I'd not be shocked to see it happen again at the end, either, with Jon perhaps playing the Nissa Nissa role and giving up his last breath to help Daenerys finish whatever Azor Ahai Reborn business needs finishing. Anything is possible, but think about it. Whatever the last hero did, it may have ended the long night and beaten back the others for the moment. Well, okay, for 8,000 years, which isn't bad. But it didn't permanently solve the problem. It's very possible that simply repeating the actions of the past, uh, repeating the actions of the last hero or Zorahai High or whomever, isn't going to cut it. We may see something more like an inverted or mirrored parallel to the events of the original sins of the long night instead. In fact, the moment of starting back creates this mirror image. The moment at which you start back, retracing your steps, is the moment at which you pivot, as if you had run into a mirror and bounced off, reversing your steps like a tape played backwards. As Rusted Revolver and others have found, that start-back moment turns out to be a recurring device that Martin uses in the plot arcs of his character to pinpoint the moment they begin their redemption arc and start atoning for the sins of their past. A great example of this is Jamie and his Weirwood Stump Dream, where he and Brienne wield twin flaming swords in a watery underworld beneath the dream version of Casterly Rock. This is the moment of reflection and pivoting for Jamie, the moment when he starts back. Upon waking, he quite literally starts back, retracing his path from the day before back to Hall to rescue Brienne from the bear pit, thus taking the first baby steps on the path of potential redemption. Though it may have setbacks and asterisks and all kinds of needed commentary about narcissism and all the rest, Nevertheless, this is his start-back moment, and many characters have equivalent scenes, or even more than one, as is the case with Jamie. You can see how useful this kind of literary device might be to an author so obviously interested in conflicted characters with redemption arcs. Even the doomed characters often have a start-back opportunity that Martin sort of plants a flag on, only to have the main character dash by heedless. If you're thinking of Quentin Martell... And the people who advise him to turn back, well, you're on the right track. And here's the point. The book begins with one such moment, with Garrod advising Waymar to start back and go no further. But heedless, Waymar plows on to his doom. But the fact that the series opens on one of these moments is something that we're meant to notice. And by the way, this is the specific aspect of the um, start-back Thing that Rusted Revolver has really keyed in on. He's found a lot of chapters and characters where they have this moment of pivoting and starting back, and it's, it's freaking all over the place. I really hope, Rusted, I hope you get around to, to writing a true essay about this man. There's so much to it. But, uh, anyways, I just, not enough hat tips to Rusted Revolver for this. This, is, like, this essay would not exist without him. So he is brilliant, that is for sure. And also Raven Salix, big, big help too on this. So, in any case, Um, I don't want to hog the spotlight by any means. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here, for sure. All right, so with that mirroring concept in mind, in regards to the We Should Start Back line, which begins a Game of Thrones, let's think in totality about the Ballad of Sir Waymar that is told in that prologue. As I mentioned, it seems to have some of the main elements of the first part of the Last Hero story, we have a Night's Watchman who is a stand-in for a Stark facing the Others alone, with his sword breaking and his companions nowhere to be seen. But the last hero story doesn't stop there. We know he gets help of some kind from the Children of the Forest and re-emerges again, leading the Night's Watch with his Blade of dragon steel, which the Others supposedly could not stand against. Waymar, however, does no such thing. His sword breaks, and then he dies, and he gets cold-whited and joins the Army of the Dead. Now, of course, you all know about my Green Zombies theory, which stipulates that the last hero and his twelve companions did all die, but then were resurrected to become zombie knights, watchmen like Coldhands or like John's about to become. So perhaps Waymar's resurrection, especially with his Odin-like one-eye status, it might be a clue about a resurrected last hero. It's a fairly well-hidden clue, though, as undead Waymar is playing for Team Others and won't be fighting against them anytime soon. He doesn't get a new sword, and he won't be leading the watch or ending any long nights. Still, it's kind of like a last hero echo which simply ended right in the middle, with Waymar not quite measuring up where the last hero did, or as John Mayette. In fact, the moment of Waymar's enslavement by the blue star-eye magic of the others, the moment where he seems to diverge from the last hero's story, ...represents the start-back moment of the Last Hero story, the pivot point at which his story begins to go backwards and mirror itself. Consider, the Last Hero journeys into the cold lands, searching for the children of the forest, but then the others chase him, and his friends die, and his sword breaks. Then, everything reverses itself. He gets a new sword somehow, either replacing or reforging his broken sword. He gains new companions, as we're told of him leading the Night's Watch into battle with his new Dragonsteel sword. And instead of running from the others, he's now chasing them, like the shadow chaser that he is. If those new companions were indeed his original twelve, raised from the dead, as I've proposed, then it's really and truly a reversal of the first part of the story, with his friends and the last hero himself coming back to life. So just to put this in even simpler terms, sets out into the cold dead lands chased by the others, friends die, sword breaks, death. Then there's the midpoint with the mysterious Children of the Forest help. Then we get resurrection, a new sword, friends coming back to life, chasing the others, and return from the cold dead lands, victory parade. All right, so if the Waymar prologue is the first half of the Last Hero's story... Where can we find the template for the second half, the one that we really want to know about? Well, I expect we'll see it when John wakes up, of course. His Caesar-like stabbing murder by multiple black brothers is somewhat similar to Waymar being stabbed by a group of White Walkers, as I discussed with Joe Magician on his livestream a few weeks ago. Notably, the last words of both chapters is cold. Waymar's prologue chapter, which is told from Will's perspective, ends with... They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. So, last words, yet the touch was icy cold? Uh, And then John's assassination chapter at the end of A Dance with Dragons ends with... When the third dagger took him between the shoulder blades, he gave a grunt and fell face first into the snow. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. Stabbed John even falls face first in the snow here Just as Waymar falls face down in the snow Face first in the snow, face down in the snow Another comparison is that Will is murdered by the newly whited Waymar He's killed by his fellow black brother, in other words Just as John was killed by his fellow black brothers And just as resurrected John may be killing a few of those conspirators when he wakes up Just like Waymar waking up and killing Will That aside, resurrection is really the ultimate start-back moment. John's resurrection definitely qualifies, and I think we can expect it to imitate that mysterious start-back pivot point of the last hero journey, where he receives the unspecified help from the Children of the Forest and starts to turn things around. According to the Green Zombie Theory, that would be the point where he's resurrected and made into a super soldier to fight the others, which is pretty much what we expect from undead Wolfman John. A lot of ass-kicking. The major things John does after this point should tell us a lot about the remainder of the Last Hero story. And remembering that the Last Hero seems to have led the watch in the war for the Dawn after getting resurrected, I'd not be surprised to see John eventually assembling a crew to journey into the cold dead lands, which, by the way, by that time might be everything north of Winterfell. In fact, I think John's resurrection will also be a start back moment in that he will be somewhat freed of his duties as a knight's watchman and will likely return to Winterfell, where he began his journey, only to eventually go out and fight the others at the end, as we all expect him to. Bran, who again also has last hero symbolism, has a very similar moment, lying in the snow, that I'd like to mention. While he's in Blood Raven's cave in a dance with dragons, learning how to be a green seer and eating his friend, sorry, he talks about starting back. Some days, Bran wondered if all of this wasn't just some dream. Maybe he had fallen asleep out in the snows and dreamed himself a safe, warm place. You have to wake, he would tell himself. You have to wake right now or you'll go dreaming into death. Once or twice, he pinched his arm with his fingers really hard. But the only thing that did was make his arm hurt. Bran is imagining himself lying in the snow, like dead Waymar or dead John, and he fears he's about to die. While stuck in this quote unquote dream of being a green seer in a cave and eating his friend, he tries to wake himself from this supposed dream and go back to his body lying in the snow back home so that he can get up out of the snow and start back home, just like John or Waymar rising from the snow after their resurrection. Bran isn't dreaming, of course, at least, well, he, he really is in Blood Raven's cave, although from there he is kind of green dreaming. And really, He is still under the snow and dreaming, quote-unquote, since the cave is in the far north and it's beneath ground buried in snow. Accordingly, most of us do expect Bran to leave that cave and eventually start back to Winterfell, at which point he will parallel Jon and Waymar waking up from the snow to begin mirroring their previous events of the journey. There's another layer here, too. Bran is wondering if he's lying in the snow, and dreaming he's in a weird cave, while as of the end of the Dance with Dragons, John's body is actually lying dead in the snow. But John's spirit is not in a weird cave, but inside Ghost, the Weirwood colored wolf. Symbolically, being inside Ghost is very like being inside a weird cave, I would say. And as you know, I hypothesize that the original Last Hero's spirit was temporarily preserved either in the Weirwood Net itself or in his skin changer bonded animal like John. The Last Hero's resurrection may well have taken place in a weirwood root cave or in a weirwood grove like the Grove of Nine. So that's cool, right? The Last Hero story has a start-back bearing point, even more so if the green zombies theory is true, and I'm pretty confident in that one, as much as I am of moon meteors or anything else. Waymar seems to show us the first half in the prologue, and I think we can expect to see the second half of The Last Hero journey when John wakes up and perhaps when Bran leaves the cave. And all of this, the entire concept of starting back and inverted parallels, all of these ideas are seeded in that first sentence of the prologue. We should start back. Now there's one more layer of this start back thing, and it's perhaps the most wicked of all. Rusted Revolver and Ravenous Reader have been fascinated with the start back concept for a while now, and have been pursuing it heavily, and while I've been busy working on my own scripts... I've also been keeping track of their research. And then when I was studying this A Game of Thrones prologue for that live stream I did on Joe Magician's channel, as a follow-up to his Waymar videos, something just clicked. Start back. Start back. What if you reverse the order of events in the prologue? Sort of read it backwards. What if you reached the end and then started back, retracing your steps through the chapter? Well, let me tell you, it's a thing. As I like to say, a thing that George Martin has done. I'll let you judge for yourselves, and you do have to understand the basic ideas I've laid out in my various compendiums regarding Azor high Nissa Nissa, and their connection to the Weirwoods, and that sort of thing for it to make total perfect sense. But I think it does make sense, and the myth heads are on board, so let's take a look. First, before we read it backwards, we actually need to read it forwards, at least we need to go through the main events and outline both how they demonstrate the basic mythical astronomy pattern of sun and comet killing the moon to make moon meteors, uh, as well as the people involved that fit the archetypal roles of Azor Hi, and Nissa Nissa. Even though I just said that Waymar's arc echoes the first half of The Last Hero's journey, which it does, there is also a more detailed template of both the sky and ground versions of Lightbringer's forging written into the chapter. Let's have a look at that, and then we'll hold our copies of A Game of Thrones up to the mirror and read it backwards. Uh, no. no, we're, That's not what we're going to do. Uh, no. just, just hold on, and I'll take care of it. This next section is dedicated to Daphne Eversweet, Queen Bee of the Red Poppy Fields, Guardian of the Crone's Lantern, and Keeper of the Black Rabbit with big, pointy, nasty teeth who can leap about me of the Jade Sea, the Merry Keeper of the Winter Roses, and Guardian of the Celestial Ghost. Han Never Solo, the Scorpion Mind, Cyber Pinscher of the Weirwood Net, and Guardian of the Celestial Stallion and Horned Lord. And Hypner, Guardian of the King's Crown and the Cradle. And Mallory Sand, Storm Witch, the Hand of the Dragon, Rider of Zulfric the Black Beast, and Guardian of the Celestial Galley, a.k.a. the Weirwood Submarine. Look, you're right here. <laughs> okay, let's start forwards So I'm calling this section the forwards reading But what it really is, is the mythical astronomy layer And we just aren't reading it backwards yet The astronomy layer is hidden underneath the action in the fight scene And it's a bit tricky because the original Azor High and Nissa forging of Lightbringer And its corresponding celestial events are fiery affairs through and through While this entire prologue takes place in the frozen north There's also no women anywhere to be seen, so someone with a penis is going to have to play the Nissa Nissa role, I'm afraid. It'll be like Monty Python episode, though. It'll be great. Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, (laughs) howdy-do. But in all seriousness, we do know that the celestial pattern of sun and comet kill moon to make fiery moon meteors can manifest as all manner of interpersonal dramas, and sometimes the person playing the fire moon role, which we normally think of as Nissa Nissa, is a man. For example, take Gregor Clegane when he fought Oberyn Martell in that famous duel, full of mythical astronomy symbolism. He did a couple of things that remind us of Nissa, Nissa If you remember, George threw in that line about Oberyn and Gregor being close enough to kiss, for example. But for the most part, we thought of Gregor as the fire moon in that fight, and that's kind of what appears to be happening here in the prologue. Now, the primary forwards reading of the action. Irrespective of astronomy symbolism, is what we've been talking about. Weimar as the last hero confronting the others, but within that drama is also tucked the basics of the Long Night Sun Kill Moon scenario and the story of Nissa Nissa and Azora High. As I was just saying, the first step is to identify the players. Who's the Sun? Who's the Moon? Who is Nissa Nissa and who is Azora High? Well, I've long pondered the question, and it wasn't until I revisited the prologue recently. And then began looking at it in reverse that I have found the answers. And I also have to give a ton of credit to all the myth heads, like I was saying, who helped me hash this out in the past few weeks. I think I was struggling at first because I was trying to figure it out with only symbolic astronomy-based analysis. And the astronomy symbolism in this chapter is actually a bit scattered about. Uh, But when I honed in on the narrative dynamic of the characters involved, that's when it really made sense to me. Let's take it from the beginning and you'll see how this works. I'm also going to divide this forwards reading into subsections for clarity as there is just a damn lot going on and there's a bunch of stuff from other chapters that we have to mention too because it ties into this or that thing. Hopefully breaking it up into subsections will make it easier. This first section is called Wazor Ahamar or Wazor the Amazor, I guess. That was the winner of the poll. We did that poll. What should the name be? Wazor the Amazor was the winner by a landslide, I have to say. So first of all, Waymar is the last hero in one sense. And if he's the last hero in one sense, he's the obvious candidate to play the role of Azor High in any sort of Azor Ahai-Nissa-Nissa Nissa action. If you've watched Joe Magician's The Killing of a Ranger, and maybe even if you haven't, you know about the many correlations between Waymar and Jon Snow. And that's another tip-off that Waymar is likely to be the Azor High figure because Jon Snow's an Azor, I figure. Indeed, I can say without reservation that this turns out to be the case. Hence the title, Wazor the Amazor, which I chose to go with over Azorway Marahai for whatever reason. By the way, Azorway Marahai. So Azor, and then Way Mar, and then Ahai. That's how I got that. But the last name is Marahai. Marahai is the name of that crescent-shaped Island, volcanic island in the uh, Jade Sea, which has two volcanoes on it. And um, it's probably a total coincidence, but. Waymar resembles John. John is an Azorah high figure. It's all making sense, right? If you've listened to or read Blood of the Other Four, The Long Night Was His to Rule, then you'll also recall that Waymar correlates very strongly not only to John, but also to Euron Crozeye and to Amund One Eye Targaryen, the latter being a figure from the Targaryen Civil War known as the Dance of the Dragons. So there are several correlations between these figures... Amund One-Eye, Euron Eye, and Waymar... But the most important one is the Sky Map Face... Which, if you remember anything from that episode... It was probably the Sky Map Face... In brief, Waymar, Euron, and Aemond One-Eye... All have a face which symbolizes the sky... And a pair of eyes which seem to symbolize the moons of ice and fire... Waymar and Euron, in particular, are an exact match... Weimar's bloody and blinded eye, and Euron's blood eye that he keeps under a patch, would represent the slain fire moon, the one which gave up its waves of night and blood. Waves of night and moon blood when it died. Weimar and Euron both pair this blood eye with a blue eye. Euron's blue eye is called his smiling eye, while Weimar's is animated with cold blue star fire, and of course this eye would represent the ice moon. We'll get into that in more detail in a bit, but my main point in mentioning it now is that Euron, and Aemon, One-Eye, and to a lesser extent John, all manifest symbolism which we would describe as evil Azor Ahai, or Bloodstone Emperor, or Knight's King symbolism. Setting aside the specific question of whether Azor Ahai himself became Knight's King, or whether it might have been his son or brother or something like that, we have seen enough evidence to be confident of a direct link between Azor Ahai. Wielder of Lightbringer, and Slayer of Nissa Nissa, and Night's King, with the important qualification that our mythical astronomy conception of Night's King is slightly counter to the official legend, and that this symbolic evidence seems to indicate Night's King as having lived during the Long Night and not after. All of which is to say that Weimar's symbolism correlates very strongly to characters who manifest a range of Azor Ahai, Bloodstone Emperor, and Knights King symbolism. And therefore, it makes sense to look at Waymar as the Azor Ahai figure in this prologue drama play. Call him the Runestone Emperor, if you wish. Because the Royces are from Runestone. When we take a look at the surface-level narrative of the conversation between the three rangers as the chapter opens, Wayzor the Amazor starts making a lot more sense. Garrod and eventually Will are arguing for starting back to Castle Black while Waymar wants to push on. Garrett and Will are very in tune with the forest, being seasoned rangers and skilled woodsmen, while Waymar is a richly dressed and entitled lordling, out on his first ranging, one which he commands solely on the merits of his high birth. He's struggling with the woods, and yet boldly forcing those who know the woods to lead him on. To me, it reads very like Azora High, forcing an unwilling Nissa to lead him into the weirwood net. And the narrative bears this out. Waymar is also showing that he knows no fear, a signature Azor High Knight's King trait. Recall that Old Nan says Night's King was a warrior who knew no fear, and that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. Regarding the Corpse Queen and Night's King, Old Nan also says that fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her. After the opening lines, where Garrett urges Waymar to start back because all the wildlings are dead, Waymar then retorts with, "'Do the dead frighten you?' Sir Waymar Royce asked with just the hint of a smile. Garrod did not rise to the bait. He was an old man past fifty, and he had seen the lordlings come and go. "'Dead is dead,' he said. "'We have no business with the dead.'" "'Death is one of the things that people fear the most.'" And here's Waymar giving the dead a defiant, cocksure smile. After Will offers that his mother told him that dead men sing no songs, Waymar famously answers, "'My wet nurse said the same thing, Will,' Royce replied. "'Never believe anything you hear at a woman's tit. "'There are things to be learned even from the dead.' His voice echoed too loud in the twilight forest. "'Easy there, Mr. Necromancer Guy,' Now, in this case, learning from the dead refers to simple detective work, really, but it does give off a kind of Bloodstone Emperor necromancer vibe, especially since we know that Waymar will soon rise from the dead with a cold-blue star-eye version of Odin face. Anyway, anyway, Mar, he doesn't fear the dead. And much like Robert laughing too loudly in the Winterfell crypts, Waymar's pronouncements echo too loud in the Twilight Forest. It's the first hint that Waymar is an intruder here in the woods, just as Azor Ahai is an intruder inside the net. Next, Garrod cautions that they might have an eight or nine day ride to get back to the wall, and that night is falling. In response, Waymar taunts Garrod, asking if he's unmanned by the dark. Wayzor Ahamar, lord of night, is, of course, not scared of the dark. He does not fear death or the fall of night. In fact, he revels and takes power from those things. After this, we get the fearful musings of Will, our POV for the prologue, which are centered around the creepy feeling that he and Garrod are getting from the woods, a feeling Waymar is oblivious to, of course. This can't be emphasized enough. Will and Garrod are in tune with the woods, with its trees rustling like living things in the cold north wind, while Waymar is heedless, haughty, and too bold by half, to use a phrase. In the end... It will be the shadows emerging from the dark of the wood who will convert the hostility of the forest into violence and teach this young lord a sharp lesson. It is at this point that we get a detailed description of the lordly Sir Waymar, and most of it screams out, "Knight's king, a dark solar king. First, we read that he's a handsome youth of 18, gray-eyed and graceful, and slender as a knife. All of the black brothers have black sword and black knife symbolism, as they are the swords in the darkness, who always wear black and wield black knives and swords against the others. So Waymar is kind of a prototypical example of the Night's Watch in his knife-like nature. As we know, the Dark Solar King archetype strongly identifies with the black meteors, which are like black swords and black dragons. This is nowhere more evident in the figure Waymar is paralleling Jon Snow, who is himself compared to a dragonglass knife. So this all fits pretty well. It says that... Mounted on his destrier, the knight towered above Will and Garrod on their smaller gairns, which creates the image of Weimar as a black tower, or shadow tower. That's a recognizable motif that we've seen many times, which alludes to the towering columns of dark smoke that would have snaked upward into the sky from the meteor impacts. Think of Harrenhal's Kingspire Tower. It's kind of the perfect distillation of the Black Tower symbol of smoke. The Black Tower of Smoke symbol, rather especially since it was burned and melted by the incomparable fires of Balerion the Black Dread, so much so that it now appears lopsided beneath the weight of the slagged stone that made it look like some giant half-melted black candle. Say, wait a minute, a tower that is a pyre and a black candle? That sounds like a unification of glass candles and smoky pyres. And that makes sense because you can see visions both in the flames as Melisandre does or through the use of a lit glass candle as Marwyn the Mage does. Comparing the black tower to a black candle and thus to a dragon glass knife also shows you that towers and swords can often be interchangeable as symbols something we see with the white sword tower of the Kingsguard or the Pale Stone sword tower at Starfall. Take note of the fact that Waymar was compared to a knife and then a tower in rapid succession further emphasizing the Knife tower interchangeability Uh, Next up is the famous description Of his sable cloak And by the way this is my sable tracksuit And that is essentially the same Waves of darkness and night Symbolism His cloak was his crowning glory Sable thick and black And soft as sin Bet he killed them all himself he did Garrod told the barracks over wine Twisted their little heads off Our mighty warrior They had all shared the laugh by the way, I gotta I gotta say uh, rest in peace to Roy Dotrice. I love his scared voice. He was like, twisted the little heads off, our mighty warrior. It's like it's the greatest like grunty old man Roy Dotrice voice, so Rest in peace, Dotrice. I love Roy. I even love his very awkward Sansa voice. Anyways, if the smoke columns that rise from the impact locations can be symbolized as black towers. The smoke and darkness that spreads out from the exploding moon itself is most often represented by the black crown symbol. And here I guess I will go ahead and put on the black crown for symbolism. The black crown is a deliberate inversion of the golden crown of solar kings. And it it is the waves of darkness from the moon which actually turn the real actual sun dark during the long night. The sable cloak unites those ideas, being Waymar's crowning glory. It's both a black crown and a billowing cloak of darkness. It's soft as sin because, of course, the acts which cause the long night darkness are the original sin of A Song of Ice and Fire. These ideas are built on a couple of pages later when Waymar reaches the clearing and finds it empty. He stood there beside the sentinel, long sword in hand, his cloak billowing behind him as the wind came up, outlined nobly against the stars for all to see. Waymar's sable cloak of darkness is blotting out the stars, oh my, billowing out from him like a tower of smoke. We can essentially think of this cloak of darkness as the skin of the slain moon because it comes off of the moon when it's destroyed. The cloak of darkness is the dust and smoke and debris of the moon itself. So the cloak is essentially made up of the moon's corpse, if you will. It's the Solar King who then puts on this Dark Cloak, thereby transforming himself into the Dark Solar King and eventually Night's King. Notice the exchange a moment ago in reference to the cloak, where Garrod joked about how Weymar must have twisted their little heads off himself. Sable is a word used for the species of marten from which sable cloaks are made. And a marten is like a weasel type of thing, in case you didn't know. With very dark brown and black fur. That's right. It's a small furry mammal bearing our author's name. Laugh it up if you will. But the point is, the idea of a cloak being a stolen skin is emphasized here with their discussion. And this is a classic depiction of the actual mechanics which cause the darkness of a long night. The sun putting on the dark cloak of the burnt and broken moon. Now, here comes the trippy part. That's right, it's not trippy yet. Now it's going to get trippy. So pay close attention. Because the moon correlates to Nissa Nissa, the cloak of darkness that comes from the moon can also be seen as the skin of Nissa Nissa. What do I mean by that? Well, Nissa, Nissa becomes the weirwood after she dies, right? And then the green seer wears that skin by skin changing the tree as green seers do. And even though the trees are white, the green seer sits in darkness and wears it like a cloak. Recall Bloodraven's words to Bran. Darkness will be your cloak, your shield, your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong. I mean that's pretty straightforward, right? Now I'm not saying that Bran is the Knight's King, although Knight's King was surely a green seer. What I'm saying is that in every sense, the symbol of the dark cloak comes from things that symbolize Nissa Nissa, namely from the moon and the weirwood trees. The moon's dark cloak covers the sun and the world, and the green seer wears the tree as a cloak of darkness when they enter the Weirwood net. Azor Ahai broke the moon, unleashing the great darkness and this act seems to be connected to his attempt to gain access to the Weirwood Net and wear its Cloak of Darkness. That's what Waymar is showing us here, too. He's going to do some symbolic Nissa-Nissa killing in a moment. He's got his sable-skin cloak, which blots out the stars, and he's on a fast track to acquiring some Fire of the Gods greenseer symbolism. The symbolism of the sable cloak really explodes when we compare Waymar to Euron Greyjoy, who likes to wear a sable cloak. And an eye patch, and nothing else. Yeah, sorry for that. Sorry, guys. It's true though. He took his sable draw that, Sanry. No, don't don't draw that. Um <laughs> He took his sable cloak from Baylor Blacktide, whom he murdered for reasons of cruelty, religious intolerance, and symbolism. The fact that the black cloak comes from someone named Blacktide really spells out the waves of night symbolism of the sable cloak, so you gotta like that. And once again, we see the implication of the sable cloak as something the knight's King figure gains by killing someone and stealing it from them. That someone should be a nyssa figure, so let's consider Baylor Tide for a minute. The Tide sigil is a pattern of green and black, a depiction of a black tide on a green sea, presumably. Symbolically, it's a blend of the waves of night symbol and the green sea symbol, which makes perfect sense for a Nissa, Nissa figure. Baylor himself is a godly man who is named for an extremely godly man, Baylor the Blessed, and it is in part for his worship of the Seven that Euron singles him out for murder. Nightflyer was seized. Lord Blacktide delivered to the king in chains. Euron's mutes and mongrels had cut him into seven parts to feed the seven Greenland gods he worshipped. So, forget for a moment the fact that the phrase Greenland gods refers to the faith of the seven when coming out of the mouth of an ironborn. Instead, think about Balor as a holy person who worships Greenland gods, which fits the presence of the green sea in his sigil. This devout green god worshiper is murdered, and their black cloak is stolen by the Knights King. This is lining up very well with the Nissanissa symbolism that we just discussed. Notice the line about Baylor being cut up to feed the Greenland gods. It reminds you of making human sacrifice to the Weirwoods, certainly. There's another Nissan Nissa trapped in the Weirwood Net clue here in the name of Baylor Blacktide's ship, Nightflyer, one which you may know if you've watched Joe Magician's amazing video about Whisper Jewels. I know. Lots of Joe Magician love today. Lots and lots of it. I do love Joe Magician, though. So, in one of Martin's older works, Night flyers. There is a spaceship called a Night Flyer, which essentially absorbs the consciousness of a dead female character by means of a crystal technology called a Whisper Jewel. Point being, this seems to be that something Martin drew on when he imagined Nissa Nissa as a woman who dies, but whose mind inhabits some very important thing. The Weirwood Net is obviously standing in for the Night Flyer spaceship, which works very well since we know Martin thinks about the Weirwoods as astral projection ships, which the Green Seer uses to sail through the river of time and space. We also know that Martin has applied literal ship symbolism to the Weirwoods as well. The supposed rib bones of the Sea Dragon Naga are really the petrified wooden beams of a flipped-over boat, made from Weirwood, of course, and burning boats and ships are often used to represent the Weirwoods as a fire that consumes those who wish to sail the Green Sea. Anyways, think about it like this. We've already found our way to the idea that Nissa Nissa's consciousness transfers to the Weirwood net when she dies, which makes the Weirwood a device very similar to the Whisper Jewel that powers the Nightflyer ship and stores the dead woman's consciousness. Martin named Baylor's ship after the Nightflyer spaceship, and we know that Martin is using the ship metaphor for the Weirwoods. Now we have this dark Azor Ahai knight's king figure Euron, killing someone by feeding them to the Greenland gods and taking their nightflyer ship, after which Euron puts on darkness as a cloak as the green seer does. It really seems like George is saying to us that when evil Azor Ahai invades the weirwood net, it's something like stealing a spaceship that contains Nissanissa's consciousness. That's what Joe Magician and I have concluded. The Weirwoods are functioning like Whisper Jewels. Just like the Nightflyer ship, the Weirwood net is inhabited by and even powered by the consciousness of a dead woman. After Azor Ahai, the naughty Green Seer, kills Nissa, Nissa and sends her into the trees, he can then wear Nissa Nissa's Weirwood skin as a cloak of darkness, just like Euron wearing Baylor's sable cloak and sailing his Nightflyer ship. Hopefully that made sense. As I mentioned at the top, Euron's one-eyed Odin status is a kind of greenseer symbolism anyway. So all the stuff about him killing Baylor and taking his black cloak and his ship being suggestive of greenseer symbolism is really just a compliment to that more obvious one eye thing that he's already got going on. It does, however, fill out the symbolism of Waymar's sable cloak very nicely. Painkiller Jane comes in here with a good observation. This idea of the Green Seer wearing the skin of Nissa, Nissa as a cloak is actually something we've seen before, only instead of a sable skin cloak, it was a squirrel skin cloak. That's right, we're talking about the Vermeer Six Skins prologue of A Dance with Dragons, and the squirrel skin cloak he tries to take off of a dead wildling spearwife, only to have her son rush out of the bushes and stab him. Wah, wah. The quote about that actually has some great Green Sea, Green Seer wordplay, uh, now that we look back on it, so let's go ahead and pull that one. Hundreds more went off with the woods witch who'd had a vision of a fleet of ships coming to carry the free folk south. We must seek the sea, cried Mother Mole, and her followers turned east. Vermeer might have been amongst them if only he'd been stronger. The sea was gray and cold and far away, though, and he knew that he would never live to see it. He was nine times dead and dying, and this would be his true death. A squirrel-skin cloak, he remembered. He knifed me for a squirrel-skin cloak. Its owner had been dead. The back of her head smashed into red pulp flecked with bits of bone. But her cloak looked warm and thick. First of all, that's cool green seaword wordplay, right? Vermeer knew he would never live to see the sea. That's another great one. Of course, Azor High has to die to enter the Weirwood net... So you kind of don't live to see the sea anyways, you die to see the sea, just as Verimir will die at the conclusion of this chapter. As we've discussed in the Weirwood Goddess series, the dead wildling spearwife with the squirrel skin cloak is a prime Nissanissa Nissa as a child of the forest clue, as the children are called the squirrel people by the giants. This wildling woman represents Nissa, Nissa and here we have our evil green seer, Verimir, stealing her skin cloak. Just as with all the sable cloak symbolism that we just went over. Tellingly, her son comes out of his hiding place nearby and stabs Vermir for trying to take the cloak, which is yet another depiction of the child of Nissa Nissa coming back to kill Father Azor Ahai, Which, of course, may translate to a last hero killing a knight's King who was his daddy. Importantly, this uh, dead wildling's squirrel skin cloak is just a warm-up for the same symbolism that appears at the end of the chapter when Verimir wears Thistle's skin as a cloak by trying to snatch her body. It's just another way of showing the solar greenseer stealing the skin of Nissanissa, Nissa, which I have said amounts to skin changing the weirwood. And of course Thistle gets the grisly weirwood stigmata in that scene, making her a symbolic weirwood, and then Varamyr's spirit makes a pit stop in the frozen weirwood after he fails to possess Thistle's body. The weirwood is ultimately the skin of Nissa, Nissa but the squirrel skin cloak early in the chapter shows us what Nissa Nissa used to be before she was sent into the weirwoods. Somebody who had the blood of these squirrel people, if you will. Blood of the squirrel. There you go, that's what we should call it from now on. Notice that Vermeer thinks about the sea being cold and gray and far away in that last quote. It's a cold sea that he's about to enter because I think Vermeer represents a knight's King figure That comes out icy, very like whited Waymar who rises with one blue star eye It ties into the frozen lake symbolism of the others, in other words Think about where Vermeer ends up after failing to possess thistle Momentarily inside the frozen weirwood tree And then inside his one-eyed wolf The one-eyed wolf is very much a parallel to one-eyed Waymar And the frozen weirwood is another representation of the cold sea or cold lake symbolism Now check out the quote about the weirwood When Vermeer pushed at it, the snow crumbled and gave way, still soft and wet. Outside, the night was white as death. Pale, thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon, while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them, the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. I've pointed out before that Martin is essentially painting a portrait of the Others in the sky here. The dancing, pale, thin clouds are like the pale, thin bodies of the Others who dance with Waymar Royce. And the thousand stars watching coldly would be like the cold star eyes of the Others peering from the darkness of the woods. Then the Weirwood is described in very specific Others language. It's a pale shadow, and it's armored in ice, which is highly evocative of the ice armor of the Others. In other words, this paragraph is a big clue about the Others coming from some frozen part of the Weirwoods, from the frozen part of the Green Sea, if you will. This is where Azor Ahai goes when he becomes knight's king, and where he creates the others, at least in a magical sense. The cold whited thistle ends the chapter with corpse queen symbolism that is worth taking a look at. She wore wool and fur and leather, and over that she wore a coat of hoarfrost that crackled when she moved and glistened in the moonlight. Pale pink icicles hung from her fingertips, ten long knives of frozen blood. And in the pits where her eyes had been, a pale blue light was flickering, lending her coarse features an eerie beauty they had never known in life. A beautiful corpse with blue star eyes and those frozen knives in her hands, oh my. Kind of reminds us of the Corpse Queen, yes, but also of Stoneheart, another weirwood stigmata goddess figure, with her nails raking her face like ten raven's talons when she's dying at the Red Wedding. We're going to talk more about the Nissa Nissa, Night's Queen symbolic connection as this prologue chapter goes on, by the way. Ergo, we can see abundant parallels between the two prologue chapters five books apart, from the squirrel skin cloak-sable cloak comparison to the dancing other symbolism to the rise of a cold, one-eyed knight's king figure from some cold part of the weirwood net. And of course, I'm promising that there will be equivalent knight's queen and nissa, nissa stigmata symbolism to come in the Game of Thrones prologue that will match Thistle's weirwood stigmata and the frozen weirwood tree. That's an awful lot of symbolism for one sable cloak, I know, but you have to admit, Martin pays it a lot of attention in the Waymar prologue, and then he seems to be building on that symbol all throughout the series. Plus, Nissa, Nissa going into the Weirwood net turns out to be a major symbolic theme of this chapter, so it's worth digressing a bit. And as you're about to see, all the symbolism related to Euron's sable cloak and the sable cloak in general very much applies to Waymar in this chapter just as Euron is trying to force his way into becoming a god and just like Vermeer was trying to force his way into thistle to cheat death and most of all just like Azor Ahai was trying to force his way into the weirwood net Waymar of the sinful black crown sable cloak is forcing his way into the woods against the will of his guides one of those guides should represent Nissanissa, Nissa, and i am here to tell you that it is will or as we shall call him Wilsa-Wilsa. Dun-dun-dun. Yep. Wazor, the Amazor, and Wilsa-Wilsa. That's what we got, guys. Wilsa-Wilsa-Wilsa. Now, the first clue about Will being a Nissa-Nissa is the name Will. It's the root in the female name Willow, which, of course, comes from the Willow tree had Tip-Rested Revolver once again. The main thing that Will does in this chapter is climb the tree and come back down, and everything he does in relation to the tree represents Nissanissa Nissa going into and coming out of the Weirwood net. Nissanissa Nissa and all Green Seers basically merge with their trees, and we're going to see that symbolism here with Will, so naming our Nissanissa Nissa figure after a tree makes a lot of sense. We've also seen a Weirwood goddess figure named Willow before, that would be the teenage child woman as they say in Westeros who keeps the orphan children at the inn of the crossroads in a feast for crows the inn itself has abundant weirwood symbolism as we explored in weirwood compendium 3 garth of the gallows and willow is playing the role of the goddess inhabiting the tree and all of that is the symbolism that george is building upon by using the name will now after that detailed description of sir waymar and his glorious sable cloak that we just talked about for like 10 minutes we get some important symbolic info on the weirwood goddess, Wilsa Wilsa. Will had been a hunter before he joined the Night's Watch. Well, a poacher, in truth. Malister Freeriders had caught him red-handed in the Malister's own woods, skinning one of the Malister's own bucks, and it had been a choice of putting on the black or losing a hand. No one could move through the woods as silent as Will, and it had not taken the Black Brothers long to discover his talent. So, this quote is great. Red-handed. Caught red-handed in the Malister's own woods. So although both Garrod and Will are veteran rangers, Will is singled out for his exceptional woodscraft. No one can move as silently through the woods as him. That's a good way of implying him as a native of the forest, a child of the forest figure, in other words, as we believe Nissa, Nissa to be. Will was caught red-handed in the woods, belonging to a high lord. Lord Malister, to be exact. Caught red-handed in the woods is an obvious euphemism for being caught in the weir of the weirwood trees with their red leaves like bloody hands. The possible penalty of Will having his hand chopped off further ties the red hand symbolism to Will and shows that he is becoming part of the weirwood tree, his hands red like those of the tree. Skinning a stag is somewhat ambiguous, though it seems to be a reference to skin-changing and horned lords, I would read it as Azor Ahai, the stag, being sacrificed so he can slip his skin and enter the weirwood tree, which is an avatar of Nissa, Nissa. And finally, consider House Malister with its silver eagle on purple sigil, their house words above the rest, and their keep named Seagard. I'm not positive, but this could be a reference to the eagle. At the top of the Yggdrasil tree, above the rest, it's an eagle at the top, with the name Sea Guard alluding to the idea of the Weirwoods guarding the green sea, which exists inside the Weirwood net. Also, Sea Guard, Sea Garden, that one's for Rusted Revolver. Painkiller Jane has another light breaking find here. Sam plays the role of the Ratatosker Squirrel, bearing messages between Lauren Dennis Malister and Cotter Pike in a storm of sorts. That's to get John elected, if you recall. With Lord Dennis Malister playing the eagle at the top of the tree, and Cotter Pike playing the nidhogg serpent at the bottom in the roots. Think of the word pike as alluding to both fish and spears, and of course pike on the Iron Islands is where we find all the heavy sea dragon symbolism. So, it would seem that the Malister eagle is indeed inspired by the Yggdrasil eagle. Thanks, Painkiller Jane. Uh, Will's poacher status has to be examined too because Martin has elsewhere indicated that the way that lords claim ownership over the woods and then punish anyone who hunts without their leave is bogus and unfair, and it's basically bullshit. It's actually the lordly Malisters in the Azura High role here, trying to steal the woods for themselves from the common people. And as it turns out, there seems to be intentional correlations drawn between Weymar and the Malisters. Get ready. Another digression. Here we go. First of all, consider Lord Dennis Malister, a veteran of the Night's Watch who commands the Shadow Tower. Wait a minute. Didn't fellow Night's Watchmen and Lordling Waymar tower over his companions in all his black steel and clothing just a minute ago? Oh, yes, he did. And consider the description of Lord Dennis from A Feast for Crows. The commander of the Shadow Tower had been born beneath the booming tower of Seagard, and looked every inch a malister. Sable trimmed his collar and accented the sleeves of his black velvet doublet. A silver eagle fastened its claws in the gathered folds of his cloak. His beard was white as snow, his hair was largely gone, and his face was deeply lined, it was true. Yet he still had grace in his movements and teeth in his mouth, and the years had dimmed neither his blue-gray eyes nor his courtesy." Sable Collar, eh? Snowbeard. Mm, You don't say. And what nice, bright, blue-gray eyes you have, my dear. In other words, and I've mentioned this before in the Blood of the Other series, Dennis Malister appears to have some icy, otherish symbolism about him, just as resurrected Waymar does. And look, Sable. So when we read about Will being caught red-handed by the Lord of Seaguard in the Lord's Own Wood, I think we can indeed read that as Nissa Nissa being killed and turned into a red-handed tree with the sable-cloaked, icy lord claiming dominion over the wood. Remember, the Night's Watch is a kind of symbolic death sentence. And the original Night's Watch, according to the green zombie theory, were resurrected people, so Lord Malister really is handing the red-handed Will a symbolic death sentence. To corroborate all of this, check out the narrative as Will and Waymar arrive at the empty clearing where the dead bodies of the wildlings are supposed to be. The Great Sentinel was right there at the top of the ridge where Will had known it would be, its lowest branches a bare foot off the ground. Will slid in underneath. Flat on his belly in the snow and the mud, and looked down on the empty clearing below. Will is sliding underneath a tree to see, like a green seer sitting under a weirwood tree and using its magic to see. This is a sentinel tree too, so the idea of watching and seeing is right in the name. But Nissa, Nissa is supposed to die when she goes into the tree, right? Well, the next words after the paragraph we just read are, "His heart stopped in his chest." For a moment, he dared not breathe. Oh no, Wilsa-Wilsa's heart stopped when she's using the tree to see. My, my. It happens again a moment later. The exact same sequence. On your feet, Will, Sir Waymar commanded. There's no one here. I won't have you hiding under a bush. Reluctantly, Will obeyed. Sir Waymar looked him over with open disapproval. I'm not going back to Castle Black, a failure on my first ranging. "'We will find these men,' he glanced around. "'Up the tree. Be quick about it. Look for a fire.' "'Will turned away, wordless. There was no use to argue. "'The wind was moving. It cut right through him. "'He went to the tree, a vaulting gray-green sentinel, and began to climb. "'Soon his hands were sticky with sap, and he was lost among the needles. "'Not only a sentinel tree, but a vaulting gray-green sentinel,' language that suggests the heavenly vault of the sky. As Will is forced to climb it against his will, the wind cuts right through him. It's more Nissa, Nissa stabbing language as the tree climbing happens, just like when Wilsa Wilsa's heart stopped as he crawled beneath the tree to see. That's a pretty sly one by Martin, right? Elsewhere, on three occasions, all at the wall, he just comes right out and describes the cold wind as being like a knife, which is implied here as it cuts right through Will. His hands become sticky with tree sap which is the equivalent of tree blood and in a moment he gets it on the side of his face too which completes the tree sap stigmata. He's lost among the needles very like Danny losing herself in the green of the Dothraki Sea as we saw in Weirwood Compendium 7 and it conveys the exact same idea Nissa Nissa dissolving into and merging with the Weirwood net. Best of all Wazor the Amazor commanded Wilsa Wilsa up the tree to look for fire. <laughs> That's a... Yeah. What kind of fire can you find by climbing a tree, I ask you? Well, it's right there on your mythical astronomy drinking game bingo card. It's the fire of the gods, of course. This is a great dramatization of Azor High, using the magical sacrifice of Nissa Nissa to gain access to the weirwood fire of the gods. I mean, it's really vivid. I was a bit flabbergasted when I first caught that line. Like, really? Climb the tree and look for fire? Right after something cuts right through you? Oh, well, that's just lovely. You're starting to see why I said that Nissa Nissa dying and going into the trees is a major symbolic theme of this chapter, right? There was actually a tip-off about this theme several pages back when Will is reporting everything he saw in the clearing back to Waymar. Will says... "'There's one woman up in Ironwood, half hid in the branches. "'A far eyes.' He smiled thinly. "'I took care. She never saw me. "'When I got closer, I saw she wasn't moving, neither. "'Despite himself,' he shivered. "'Look, it's a dead woman in a tree. That's a far eyes, meaning that she's a watcher or a lookout. "'It's basically a simple diagram of what Will is about to do "'in the Nissa Nissa role. "'Become a dead woman in a tree with very good vision.' (laughs) meaning green seer of course. There's even an extra layer of this drama play between Wayzora High and Wilsa Wilsa that I found that made me crack a smile because stabbing trees is always a little bit funny. The next lines come as Will is huddled beneath the branches of the sentinel looking down at the empty clearing. Gods, he heard behind him. A sword slashed at a branch as Sir Waymar Royce gained the ridge. He stood there beside the sentinel Long sword in hand, his cloak billowing behind him as the wind came up, outlined nobly against the stars for all to see. Aha! I punked you with a quote we just used a few minutes ago. But last time we were looking at the billowing cloak. And this time we're noticing Waymar say, gods, as he slashes at a tree with his sword. And by the way, that's another parallel between Waymar and Robert, isn't it? That's like Robert's favorite thing to say, gods. Gods, Ned! That's like my go-to Robert line. Gods, Ned! Anyways, so Waymar is saying gods as he slashes a tree with his sword. From a certain point of view, he's calling the tree a god as he stabs it with his sword. Of course, we know that the green seer hive mind inside the Weirwood net is referred to as the old gods. So that part makes sense. And if Nissa, Nissa becomes merged with the Weirwood tree, then stabbing the tree is kind of like stabbing Nissa Nissa, right? Notably, this tree-stabbing occurs between the two depictions of Will dying and going into the tree, right after his heart stops as he crawls under it, and right before the wind cuts through him as he climbs it looking for fire. The other notable tree-stabbing in A Song of Ice and Fire brings us back to Houth Castle and environs. No, Hall Castle and environs. So we will pause the prologue for just a couple of minutes to visit. Significantly, we have to visit Harrenhal right before the all-important dragon battle of the God's Eye, with Daemon Targaryen and his red dragon Caraxes facing off against Aemond One-Eye and his probably white dragon, Vagar or Vegar. It's notable not only for Aemond One-Eye's presence, since he's a Waymar parallel, but also because the battle itself takes place over the God's Eye Lake and thrice mimics the God's Eye Eclipse stabbing symbolism during the battle. Once when Caraxes moves in front of the sun and then attacks from above Once when Daemon stabs Aemond in his blue star sapphire eye And again when the dragons all crash into the god's eye lake itself It is against this backdrop that we see some first class tree stabbing Daemon Targaryen walked the cavernous halls of Harren's seat alone With no companion but his dragon Each night at dusk he slashed the heart tree in the godswood to mark the passing of another day Thirteen marks can be seen upon that weirwood still, old wounds, deep and dark. Yet the lords who have ruled Heronhall since Damon's day say they bleed afresh every spring. On the 14th day of the prince's vigil, a shadow swept over the castle, blacker than any passing cloud. All the birds in the godswood took to the air in fright, and a hot wind whipped the fallen leaves across the yard. Vagar had come at last and on her back rode the one-eyed Prince Aemond Targaryen, clad in night-black armor, chased with gold. These two paragraphs are marvels of symbolism, and all of it enhances our understanding of the Game of Thrones prologue. Taking the second paragraph first, our knight's King figure Aemond makes a dramatic entrance on his symbolic ice dragon, Hori Old Vagar. The blackness of their shadow, and by the way, that's how he's described, uh, hoary which is the big clue that Vagar is a white dragon, because Hori means snowy white with age. Any case, the blackness of their shadow is emphasized. It's blacker than any passing cloud, evoking the black cloud symbolism, as is Aemon's night black armor. This is just his version of Waymar's crowning glory sable cloak, and indeed, Aemon has taken to wearing Aegon the Conqueror's black crown at this point as well. So he's got it all. Finally, there's a cryptic reference to the Nightfort here, Home of Knights King. Amund shows up on the fourteenth day, and fourteen days is called a Fortnite. Swap Fortnite around and you have Nightfort. Hat tip to I think this is Rusted Revolver. Correct me, Rusted, if that's not you, but I think this is yours. Uh, the Night Fort Fortnite thing. And uh, just take my word for it, there are enough examples of this wordplay out there to be confident in it. It is all over the place. Anytime you see 14 or a fortnight, think about the night for it and you might have something. The first paragraph meanwhile is straight up last hero stuff. 13 bleeding sword wounds on the monstrous heron hall weirwood with a very Azora high like Daemon Targaryen using Dark Sister to stab the tree. The tree represents Nissanissa, Nissa, so this is like Azora high stabbing Nissanissa. Nissa. Yes. That was the original point of this comparison. Tree stabbing. As a depiction of azor and Nyssa. but this tree stabbing symbol is also a pretty clear reference to another myth about weirwoods and meteors and that is of course the legend of the storm god's thunderbolt which set the tree ablaze the sword in this case would be the thunderbolt meteor and it's striking the tree just as the thunderbolt does in the legend and since daemon is essentially carving the tree with his thunderbolt dragon sword we can infer once again that carving the faces and making the Weirwoods inhabitable for humans is tied to the Long Night events. Caraxes also dives on Vagar like a thunderbolt in this fight, a nice touch. It's important to keep in mind that Waymar slashing at a tree uh, as he approaches Will hiding beneath the Sentinel is a parallel symbol to Waymar ordering Will up the tree while the wind cuts through him. You might imagine Azor stabbing Nissa Nissa while she's backed up against a weirwood tree, in fact. Just like Asha Greyjoy tangled in the roots of a tree that she's backed up against when uh, she has struck that famous blow that crackles up her leg like lightning. So I think that's, that's... I mean, that's how I picture it. If Azor Ahai stabbed Nissa Nissa and this was a weirwood ritual, I picture Nissa Nissa backed up against the weirwood tree just like Night's King in the TV show. Lightbringer goes in. There you go. Any case, p- the point is... Nissa Nissa's death and the symbolic lighting on fire of the Weirwood tree are part of the same act. So, Wilsa Wilsa, turning to the prologue, Wilsa Wilsa has now died and merged with the tree. She's losing herself in the sap and the foliage and becoming one with the Weirwood net. The door to the Weirwood fire of the gods is now wide open to Azorhai, And essentially, this is what the burning tree symbol from that Grey King myth is all about. The burning tree represents the weirwood tree, yes. But specifically, it represents the weirwoods in an activated state which gives man access to the fire of the gods. That's the whole point. The gray king uses the burning tree to obtain the fire of the gods for man. And he couldn't do that before it was set on fire. So this is an activation. That's what this sentinel tree symbolizes because Wilsa Wilsa has now merged with it. Now what's great is that George creates a parallel symbol to this merged Wilsa-Sentinel tree in Waymar's broken sword, the end of which, of course, is splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning at the end of the chapter. That's right, the merged Will sentinel tree is like a burning tree set ablaze by the godly Thunderbolt, and Waymar's sword is like a tree struck by lightning. That makes a ton of sense if you think about the Azor Ahai myth. Nissa Nissa's blood and strength and courage and soul all went into the steel of Lightbringer, right? So that sword is Nissa, Nissa. just as the symbolic tree, the burning tree struck by lightning, the weirwood, is also Nissa, Nissa. I've long said that Lightbringer and the fire of the gods basically manifest in two ways in the story, the burning tree and the burning sword, and that they're interchangeable symbols in many ways. And here in the prologue, we have Nissa, Nissa symbolized both as a tree person will in the tree and a sword the broken sword but the sword is like a tree struck by lightning very nice so it's all tied together and the guy climbing the tree by the way has a knife in his mouth so he's like a sword too now more clues about Weimar's sword representing Nissa, Nissa and the breaking moon come in the fight against the others itself so let's make this a subsection break Time to talk about the others. Woo! In terms of the mythical astronomy correlations, we've pretty much exclusively talked about the others as children of the ice moon. Ice moon meteors, in other words. But guess what? Here comes a curveball. The others, with all their icy white sword symbolism, can also symbolize the original comet before it collides with the moon. <laughs> Accordingly, white swords like Dawn can symbolize Lightbringer before it stabbed Nissanissa. Nissa. <laughs> I know, crazy, right? Well, recall that Lightbringer is white-hot and smoking before it stabs Nissa Nissa, and only thereafter becomes stained red with her fiery blood. It's remembered as a red sword, but that's only after it stabbed her. Before that, it was white-hot from the forge and unsullied by anyone's blood. The others aren't white-hot, of course, but then nothing burns like the cold. And they have a ton of white sword symbolism, as we know. Plus, white ice sword is actually a very good description of a comet, which are primarily made up of frozen rock, metal, and dirt, with tails that are usually whitish silver and light blue. This is where the many similarities we've discovered between Dawn and the Others come into play. They're about to help us solidify the Others as playing the role of the white, pre-stabbing Lightbringer and the pre-impact Comet. To wit, Dawn is a glowing white sword, pale as milk glass and alive with light, while the others have milk glass bones, are milky white and sword-slim themselves, and carry pale swords that are alive with moonlight. In other words, both the others and their swords wear the same symbolism as the sword Dawn, the white sword that surely has something to do with Lightbringer. Therefore, I think it makes sense to see the others as playing the role of the incoming Lightbringer comet, where they are being implied as such, which is the case here. That's exactly what happens in the scene, in fact. Think about it. The shattering of Waymar's sword and the wounding of his eye are basically the highlights of the obvious astronomy symbolism in this chapter. And all that is precipitated by the white-sword Other coming out of the darkness like a streaking white comet. Similarly, we've also seen white-sword Kingsguard knights... ...who parallel the others very strongly... ...playing the role of the white pre-stabbing Lightbringer sword and Comet. Ari's Oakheart did it in Dorne. And although I haven't covered this yet... ...Barristan Selmy does it in his Ice Dragon armor... ...when he kills a couple of pit fighters in the heart of the Pyramid... ...at the moment that the dragons are set free by poor Quentin. It's a bit of a side topic, but it is a thing. Even though Don has the same symbolism as the others... It also does make sense to see Dawn as analogous to pre-stabbing Lightbringer. It may well be that Dawn is from the Great Empire of the Dawn. And it may simply be a sword with similar technology to Azor Ahai's Lightbringer, but which has not been sullied with blood, magic, and turned red. Because Lightbringer's red and Dawn isn't. It's an obvious problem, right? Uh, plus, a glowing white sword is not that far off from a white-hot sword. And if there is a connection between Azor Ahai and the Bloodstone Emperor from the east, and Night's King in the far north, it's even conceivable that Dawn is both from the Great Empire of the Dawn in the east, and that it came to be remembered as the original Ice of House Stark. It could be both. It may have been the last hero's dragon's steel sword, or it may have even been a sword wielded by Night's King himself. After all, both swords in this Waymar versus the others fight are cold and pale, The other's pale blade is a shard of crystalline ice, for example, while Waymar's is white with frost near the end. The other's blade is alive with moonlight, and of Waymar's blade it is said that jewels glittered in its hilt and the moonlight ran down its shining steel. And then during the fight, when Waymar holds it up for the other's inspection, it says, The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the long sword trembling on high, watch the moonlight running cold along the middle. They're both icy moonlight swords, is what I'm saying. And from a certain perspective, you could even see this as a depiction of the split comet idea. If you recall, my original theory postulates that we originally had one comet which split in half as it rounded the sun, a thing which does happen in real life due to the sun's gravity, just as Solar King Tywin splits Ned's ice in half. One half of the comet would have been the one that hit the fire moon, while the other half would have just missed it and continued on in its orbit to return to us as the red comet that we know and love. The one which is destined to hit the ice moon, if I'm correct. The exploding sword is going to play the role of the moon meteor shower in a minute, but before that, it may be a hint about the two halves of an originally white comet. The others do turn their swords red with Waymar's blood at the end, just as the surviving comet would have been turned red, because the one we see in the story is red, and because Tywin, you know, he colored ice red when he split it. Anyways, we'll come back to the others in a moment, but let's get back to Will, up in the tree, right before the others appear. I mentioned that Will has a knife in his mouth as he climbs the tree, That actually comes in the lines right after the ones we quoted about Will climbing and losing himself amongst the needles. So, picking back up right after that line. Soon, his hands were sticky with sap, and he was lost among the needles. Fear filled his gut like a meal he could not digest. He whispered a prayer to the nameless gods of the wood and slipped his dirk free of its sheath. He put it between his teeth to keep both hands free for climbing. The taste of cold iron in his mouth gave him comfort. Down below, the lordling called out suddenly, Who goes there? Will heard uncertainty in the challenge. He stopped climbing. He listened. He watched. The woods gave answer. The rustle of leaves. The icy rush of the stream. A distant hoot of a snow owl. The others made no sound. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. Then it was gone. Ravenous Reader's Killing Word Metaphor makes a very strong showing here. Will has the knife in his mouth as he whispers a prayer to the nameless gods of the wood. But the nameless gods of the wood are actually the white walkers in this case, who have become avatars of the angry trees. Check out this quote. Behind him, to right, to left, all around him, the watchers stood patient, faceless, silent, the shifting patterns on their delicate armor, making them all but invisible in the wood. So the old gods are nameless, and the others are faceless. And only a couple of chapters after this, Catelyn's inner monologue ponders Ned's old gods and calls them the nameless, faceless gods of the Greenwood that they shared with the vanished children of the forest. So, faceless, nameless gods of the wood, and faceless, nameless others, the white walkers of the wood, who are almost invisible in the wood, and they appear literally right after Will climbs the tree, prays, and puts the knife in his mouth. He's uttered the killing words, in other words. A kind of magical invocation which has called down the fire of the gods. And if we think about the others as the comet, this sequence contains a mind-blowing revelation. That's right. Azor Ahai killed Nissa Nissa. Nissa Nissa, merged with the weirwood, and her prayer called the comet. This is one of the possible sequences of Long Night Causation that we've been entertaining. The death of Nissa first, with the weirwood magic involved and the magic of her death sacrifice being used to somehow call the comet or steer the comet. The original legend has Nissanissa's cry of anguish cracking the moon, which really isn't a whole lot different from Wilsa Wilsa's prayer calling in the comet others. They're both examples of the killing word as something that can move the heavens. And that's a topic that we'll explore further in the future when we get to talking about magic horns. Pretty good one, huh? At Tip Ravenous Reader, once again. Another truth is revealed when we think about the Others as, well, the Others. It seems that the Others were somehow triggered by the invasion of Azor high into the Weirwood net. They seem like a manifestation of the dark id of the Weirwoods, and they are not happy about being invaded. That's what I take from the phrase... A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. The others are like the shadow selves of the trees, the equivalent of Forbidden Planet's monsters from the Id. If you've ever seen that movie, it's definitely something uh, someone of George's generation would be familiar with. It's my dad's favorite movie, and uh, yes, there is a ho- monsters from the Id. Watch the movie if you don't if you haven't seen it. Although, uh, then think about the others as monsters from the Id, and you will get it. So, all through this chapter. The woods and those who know the woods are basically begging Waymar to turn back. The branches are clawing at him for crying out loud, but he forces Wilsa-Wilsa to lead him into the wood anyways. And as a result, the Others manifest. There's more to the secret of the creation of the Others, but this part at least seems spelled out here. They are a reaction to Azorahai's invasion of the wood. So another clue about the Others being a manifestation of the Weirwood net... ...comes when Garrod gives his famously poetic speech... ...about frostbite earlier in the chapter. He says the cold sneaks up on you quieter than Will. And this right after saying that no one could move through the woods as silent as Will... ...just a moment earlier. But then the Other appears and makes no sound... ...just as the cold steals up on you even quieter than Will. The Others are actually an extension of the Will of the Trees an answer to Will's prayer. I think that's the message here. So Nissa Nissa's cry of agony and ecstasy actually makes a very uh, prominent appearance here. And keep in mind that one of the things that Nissa Nissa's cry represents is the screamingly loud sound that accompanies large, fiery things streaking into our atmosphere. The pale sword came shivering through the air. Sir Waymar met it with steel. When the blades met, there was no ring of metal on metal, only a high, thin sound at the edge of hearing, like an animal screaming in pain. Again and again the swords met, until Will wanted to cover his ears against the strange, anguished keening of their clash. Sir Waymar was panting from the effort now, his breath steaming in the moonlight. His blade was white with frost. The others danced with pale blue light. The word keening... Is defined as an eerie wailing sound. That's what keening means, or a wail that someone makes in grief for a dead person. If you add the word anguished to keening, it seems like a clear allusion to Nisanissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy that she let out as she died, the one that left a crack across the face of the moon. We know that Martin has created another sword that is emblematic of Nisanissa's cry, and that would be Widow's Wail. Wood as well as very comparable to the Keening Swords here, because it's one half of Ned's ice, which we can see as a broken sword, or a split sword. And of course, Waymar's sword gets covered in frost ice, and then broken in this scene. And the swords of the others are also made of some kind of magic ice. You will also remember that just a moment ago, I was telling you that Waymar's sword was also playing the role of Nissa Nissa in the Shattering Moon, mainly because it shatters to create the meteor shower. And because after it was broken, it looks like a tree struck by lightning, which is a weirwood symbol, and weirwoods represent Nissanissa. Nissa. Well, here it is giving off the anguished keening, as if the sword were Nisanissa's cry. Now behold the moment when it shatters. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. A scream echoed through the forest night, and the long sword shivered into a hundred brittle pieces, the shards scattering like a rain of needles. Royce went to his knees, shrieking, and covered his eyes. Blood welled between his fingers. A rain of needles. But Arya's sword is called Needle, so really this is a rain of swords, or you might say a storm of swords meteor shower, and it's one of the very best ones. I know it's kind of basic by now, moon meteors, right? But uh, we do, this is the symbol of the all important meteor shower, and it's a very stylish storm of swords motif. As you can see, George has placed the notorious cry or wail symbol right here in the middle of the action where it belongs. And right when the steel of his sword shatters to create our moon meteor shower symbol, it says a scream echoed through the forest night. This nicely encapsulates the idea of Nissa Nissa going into the trees when she dies. She's echoing through the forest. The silent shout on the faces of all the weirwood trees might be kind of like an echo of Nissa Nissa's infamous cry of agony and ecstasy, perhaps. The wording even disassociates the scream from Weymar in particular and turns it into a sound that simply fills the world in the wood, kind of like Dragonbinder's scream filling the world when it was blown at the King's Moot. And spoiler alert, all those Dragonbinder sounds are synonymous with Nissa Nissa's cry. Ravenous Reader chimes in here with another good catch Regarding the ongoing comparison between the sentinel tree And Waymar's frozen sword, which has to do with needles Recall that quote about Will up in the tree as he closed his eyes Where he gets lost among the needles of the sentinel tree Well, Waymar's struck-by-lightning sword also contains thousands of needles Yet another clue that the tree and the sword are a unified symbol we can even imagine the sentinel tree as the cosmic world tree, with its needle-like meteor swords flying outward at the command of the Green Seer inside. Bubba, wait, it gets worse! The others themselves strike like needles. And this is from Sam's confrontation with Sir Puddles in A Storm of Swords. The other's sword gleamed with a faint blue glow. It moved toward Gren, lightning quick, slashing. When the ice-blue blade brushed the flames, a screech stabbed Sam's ears, sharp as a needle. This makes a lot of sense. The Others and their pale swords can represent either ice-moon meteors or white comets, so they're needles, just like the needles of the tree or like the sword-needle meteor shower. Because it's actually the sound in the last quote that is needle-like, we again think of Widow's wail and Nissa Nissa's cry being like a sword. So, we might even be able to say that the silent shout of the weirwoods, Nissa Nissa's cry, translates into meteor swords that stab your ears like needles, or like Lightbringer symbols like Widow's Wail, that are swords and screams at the same time. One last note on the comparison between the needles of the sentinel tree and the needles of Waymar's broken sword. Waymar, having his blind eye transfixed by a frozen sword needle, becomes tantamount to having a wooden tree needle in his eye. Or perhaps a tree root like Blood Raven. Maybe that's what's being suggested. That's probably the idea here. I'd say it's simply one more layer to the one eye green seer symbolism, but it does flow naturally out of the tree needle sword needle comparison. Ravenous Reader also points out that needles have eyes. Yes, that's right. That's another way of implying the sentinel tree as having eyes, as they say. And the needle in Waymar's eye becomes an infinite needle-eye-needle-eye-fractal-symbolism-vortex of some kind, which I will not try to describe any further. Now think about this. Because the sword-needle in Weimar's eye was frozen, it came from a frozen sword, it makes us think of frozen trees. Like that pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice from the Vermeer Sixkins, A Dance with Dragons prologue. Varmir is another cold, one-eyed, evil greenseer figure, Knight's King in other words, so I think we can say that the evidence is starting to become overwhelming. Knight's King was definitely some kind of greenseer or transformed greenseer. Now returning to the prologue and the fight, take note of the blood welling between Waymar's fingers after his eyes wounded, with welling being the key word. It also happens at the moment when he's first stabbed, just a second earlier. Then Royce's parry came a beat too late. The pale sword bit through the ringmail beneath his arm. The young lord cried out in pain. Blood welled between the rings. It steamed in the cold, and the droplets seemed red as fire where they touched the snow. Sir Waymar's fingers brushed his side. His moleskin glove came away soaked with red. So when his eyes put out, the blood welled beneath his fingers. And when the other first stabs Waymar here, we see that the blood welled beneath the rings of his ringmail. The first welling is coming from his wounded eye, which represents the fire moon exploding in front of the sun, of course, and that figures. The exploding fire moon is a celestial well of moon blood, which is overflowing itself and pouring out. So think about that. The, the moon in the sky is like a hole, like a well, and it's, it's pouring out blood. So it's like a, a, a well of blood. Now the second blood welling is happening in the rings of his mail, which also gives you a nice round... Well of blood image You'll of course notice the fiery language here Applied to Waymar's blood It's as red as fire and steaming in the cold These fiery blood drops Are basically another moon meteor symbol They're fiery bleeding stars If you will Comparable to Rhaegar's rubies falling into the trident And one other note on wells Think about the weirwood tree Looking as though it wanted to pull the moon Down into the well of the night fort It's another tie between moon destruction And wells Bran is also praying to the old gods right after he sees that image, which makes you think about Wilsa uh, Wilsa praying to the old gods uh, as the moon passes by overhead, but in any case. So in other words, Waymar really does have the whole package of moon disaster fallout. He's got waves of fiery moon blood, he's got waves of night sable cloak, and he's got that black knife symbolism. To that I will add a couple of other loose tidbits. We hear talk of the soft metallic slither of his ringmail which makes you think of metal snakes, i.e. moon meteors. And if you're creative, you can even see the circular rings of snake metal as little Ouroboroses, perhaps, which would be like a tie-in to the dragons eating their own tail of the Tolan sigil. Finally, we see his breath go out and hiss when he catches sight of the other, so more snaky stuff. Wazor High, Wazor the fire dragon, more or less. I think Waymar's temperature change is also insightful. He's got fiery red blood until his transformation by ice magic, and then he rises with frozen blood and cold fire in his eyes. This is, to put it simply, a the dragon-blooded person, turning into Night's King. He gives his blood and fire, his seeded soul, if you will, to make the others. He gives it to the snow. But this, in turn, turns him cold himself, just as we've long suspected. Weimar's intrusion into the woods throughout this chapter symbolizes Azor Ahai forcing his way into the weirwood net, as I mentioned. And Weimar also gets the weirwood stigmata right at his moment of death here, which implies uh, that weirwoods and or greenseer magic was part of his transformation. The black moleskin gloves come away red, which gives him red hands, and his bloody eye is a match for the carved bloody eyes of the weirwoods. Weimar's face is essentially carved at the same moment that depicts the moon explosion. And that's in keeping with all the other examples of weird stigmata that we've seen. It should be noted that Waymar only obtains his stigmata after Wilsa-Wilsa does, and only after Wilsa climbs the tree and prays to the gods. So the sequence is right. A Lover's Reunion. We'll finish off the forwards reading with a very short subsection, but its message is important. All right, so, Will is up in the tree. He's holding his silence instead of warning Waymar. You'll remember that when Wazor ordered Wilsa up the tree, Will had no words. This is a depiction of the silencing of Nissa Nissa as she goes into the trees. You'll recall the red smile-slash-throat-cutting aspect of the Weirwood stigmata, and in particular, you will recall Lady Stoneheart appearing as an undead Nissa Nissa ghost in her Weirwood cave with her throat cut so badly she can barely speak. The werewoods themselves are silent, though they have screaming mouths, and that's reflected by the fact that Will cannot speak after climbing the tree. Here are the lines about this. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. Then it was gone. Branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers. Will opened his mouth to call down a warning, and the words seemed to freeze in his throat. And then a moment later, Will had to call out. It was his duty, and his death, if he did. He shivered, and hugged the tree, and kept the silence. The pale sword came shivering through the air. He's not only silent, he's growing cold as well, shivering against the tree, and with his words freezing in his throat. Note the comparison between Will shivering and hugging the tree, merging with it basically, and the other's pale sword shivering through the air. Will has called the ice swords with his killing word, and both Will and the swords he summons shiver. As for the words freezing in his throat, well, that reminds me a lot of Lady Stoneheart. Lady Catelyn's fingers dug deep into her throat, and the words came rattling out, choked and broken, a stream as cold as ice. In other words... Will seems to be icing up a bit in that tree, and this is starting to smell a bit like Dead Nissenissa turning into Knight's Queen. I say turning into very loosely, because although we've discovered some Nissenissa figures transforming into Knight's Queen figures, we aren't sure yet exactly how that works. There seems to be a distinct possibility of some sort of bifurcation of Nissenissa, and we've presented a variety of plausible theories on how it could have worked part of Nissanissa's vengeful spirit coming back out of the weirwood net to inhabit either a magical ice body or even perhaps a resurrected corpse or perhaps some other spirit stealing Nissanissa's cold corpse or maybe Azorahai trying to raise Nissanissa Nissa from the dead out of love and regret or perhaps the connection is something as simple as Nissanissa Nissa and the night's queen having been sisters like Visenya and Raines that being said There is some kind of link between Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen. The symbolism of Sansa and Cersei in particular make that undeniable. That seems to be what's happening here, because not only does Will freeze in the tree, he also comes back down out of the tree. When he found the courage to look again, a long time had passed, and the ridge below was empty. He stayed in the tree, scarce daring to breathe, while the moon crept slowly across the black sky. Finally, his muscles cramping and his fingers numb with cold, he climbed it down. As soon as Wilsa-Wilsa comes down from the tree, she notices Wazor Ahai's body laying face down in the snow, a dozen slashes in his sable cloak, which is last hero math when you add in the grisly eye wound that we're about to see. Uh, Will thinks that lying dead like that, you saw how young he was, a boy. And consider what we're seeing here. I think Will is playing more of a Knight's Queen role now, as opposed to Nissa, Nissa But the point is, Will is some sort of revenant of Nissa, Nissa here, which may or may not be Night's Queen. I think that when we see Will regarding dead Waymar, we're supposed to see this as the revenant of Nissa, Nissa regarding her dead Azor, after she comes out of the trees. And just like the triple goddess always resurrects the Horned Lord, who is a sun god... I believe that that is being implied here as well. This might be slightly controversial, so I'll pull the whole quote and let you decide. But what I'm seeing in this sequence is Will standing over Waymar's body, picking up Waymar's tree struck by lightning sword, which is a clear fire of the god symbol, and then while he's standing there contemplating the sword, Waymar rises from the dead. It's almost like the sword is a magic wand that Will is using to raise the dead. Then Wilsa-Wilsa, now the knight's queen, drops the sword and closes her eyes to pray, presumably thankful that her lost love is returned from death. Check it out. And this quote runs all the way to the end of the chapter. He found what was left of the sword a few feet away. The end splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning. Will knelt, looked around warily, and snatched it up. The broken sword would be his proof. Garrod would know what to make of it, and if not him, then surely that old bear Mormont, or Maester Eamon. Would Garrod still be waiting with the horses? He had to hurry. Will rose. Sir Waymar Royce stood above him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. The right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw... The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. So this sequence is really tight here. Will is only a few feet away from Waymar, and he's holding the fire of the god's sword. And then when he stands, Waymar has already risen, which essentially means that Waymar awoke... While Will was holding the sword. So keep in mind, this is supposed to be a hidden layer of meaning. In terms of the surface plot, Waymar presumably rises on command of the Others to kill Will because they want to kill him. And that's kind of what Whites do. They lie dormant in the snow and then pop out at the most inconvenient time, as we saw outside of Bloodraven's cave with Bran and cold Hands and company. But the potential symbolism of Nissa Nissa's ghost raising dead Azor high with the fire of the gods, who's just given up his fiery blood... Well, it's quite compelling and makes a lot of sense. The Night's King myth speaks of him giving his seed and soul to his Corpse Queen, and all indications are that some part of this sex magic ritual transformed him into an icy sort of dude. Night's Queen would seem to be facilitating this transformation, so uh, someone playing the Night's Queen role, raising an Azor high figure from the snow, makes a lot of sense, especially since our undead Azor appears reanimated by ice magic, the blue star eye version of the Odin makeover. This is when he best matches Euron and Aemon One-Eye as Night's King figures, so I think we can simply say that the one blue star eye symbol exclusively belongs to Night's King figures, thus indicating Night's King as an ice magic user, as one would expect. And where did he get that ice magic? Well, from Night's Queen, of course. And thus I think it works very well to see this scene as Will, using the frozen Fire of the Gods sword to resurrect Wazor Amazor as a knight's king. And this, my friends, is the reason for the inexplicably romantic second-to-last line of this chapter. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. Whites never do this. They do not stop to savor the moment or brush anyone's cheek. They simply attack aggressively and viciously, like most zombies do. And yet we have this poetic, delicate, cheek-brushing moment. And that makes sense, if this is supposed to be symbolic of a reunification of lost lovers. Plus, what's with the long, elegant hands description of a whited person who's wearing bloody gloves? I mean, that language also does not fit with the main action. But it does fit with the idea that Martin is trying to imply a tender lover's reunion here. And as for the choking, well, that's, that's just a little bit of kinky love play, you know? I kid, of course. But I think the choking has to be there for the purposes of the main plot, and it's this anomalous cheek-brushing elegance that's supposed to be the clue about this being a reunion of sorts. Or, and we, I just thought of this this morning, we could interpret it as a depiction of Knight's King chasing and catching and basically possessing Knight's Queen, as he's said to do. And again, reminded of the choked... Stream of Ice Speech of Lady Stoneheart as Wilsa Wilsa is getting choked with icy hands. Uh, one final note on Resurrected Night's King Waymar. I can't help but notice the symbol of the meteor sword shard lodged in his eye. And think about the show's depiction of the creation of Night's King uh, being created by being stabbed with the magical dragon glass. Even setting that aside, think about the sword shard as a meteor fragment. It's literally lodged inside the body of Night's King here. It seems like a symbolic suggestion, at the very least, that evil Azor High slash the Bloodstone Emperor slash Night's King used the magic of the moon meteors to transform himself. And is even possible that there's a more literal truth here, and George is riffing on the idea of people having little pieces of metal trapped inside them after an alien abduction experience. Maybe. I'll also say that even though his wounded eye symbolizes the fire moon when it's stabbed and pouring out blood... When we see it on Resurrected Waymar, I think it might be showing us something else. Martin calls it a blind white eye transfixed by a sword shard at the very end, and this has to make us think about the dragon locked in ice symbolism. Resurrected Waymar might simply be regarded as the ice moon in this instance, just as we see the moon leering with Euron's face in one of the early t release chapters, which would imply Euron's entire face as the ice moon that time. It's not really a huge thing, but when we look at Waymar's face with one blue star eye and one white eye transfixed by a sword shard, it kind of seems like an awfully good picture of the face of the ice moon with the dragon locked in ice meteor depicted by the sword shard and the idea of turning fire magic into cold fire depicted by the cold blue burning star eye. So, guys, we're ready to start back. Let's start back. This next section is brought to you by Rickard Stargarian, the Steelheart, father of the morning and guardian of the celestial moon maid. By Dialids, the Alpha Patron, a descendant of Gilbert of the Vines and Garth the Green, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius. By Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Leo. And by Turin the Elf. Tavern Keep of the One Spring Inn, Master of the Abyss, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly Hell's Cancer. All right, so, let me explain what seem to be the rules for this. We're starting at the end and working backwards, reshuffling the order of events in reverse. There's a little discretion and common sense involved here, as sometimes we have to choose whether to reverse the action itself i.e. something falling becomes something rising, or to simply reverse the order in which the events take place relative to the events before and after it, i.e. instead of Will dropping the sword and then being strangled, now he gets strangled and then drops the sword. The hypothesis of this exercise is that if we're skilled, we can find the same sequence that we just outlined in the forwards reading when we read the chapter backwards, so we'll make those judgment calls in light of conforming to the patterns of the forwards reading. Hopefully, that didn't sound too complicated. It's actually pretty much common sense when you read the chapter to figure it out. You'll see what I mean. So, right away, we can see a natural symmetry to the chapter given the symbolism that we've just discovered. Waymar symbolically kills Will. Will climbs the tree. Waymar fights the others. Will comes down from the tree. And then, why did Waymar actually kill Will? So, looking at all those W's in a list, by the way, it occurs to me that the letter W is one of the few letters of the alphabet that looks like it is looking in a mirror if you draw a vertical line through the middle of it. Which is certainly a coincidence. That's for Rusted Revolver. I put all the silly word stuff in here for Rusted, because he likes it. Why did Waymar kills Will? Anyways, working off this basic symmetry, you can see that this chapter is primed for a backwards reading. Let's start... By reversing the order of the sentences in the last two paragraphs, we get this. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. Will closed his eyes to pray. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. It saw. The pupil burned blue. The right eye was open. The first thing that happens. Is that a sorrowful Wayzora High kills his love, Wilsa Wilsa, after tenderly stroking her cheek? This whole long night thing starts with Azora High killing Nissa Nissa, so this checks out. As Azora kills Nissa Nissa, she closes her eyes and prays, as if she's perhaps giving up her life force, or maybe even cursing Azora as she dies. I'm seeing Waymar's arm as Lightbringer here, sort of sucking the soul and strength from Nissa Nissa just as Lightbringer of Legend did. And right after this, look, a sword falls from Nissa Nissa, which mimics the creation of Lightbringer from a dying Nissa Nissa's body. It's also very like a moon coughing up a moon meteor sword as, as Nissa Nissa dies, it should be noted. Will would be the fire moon here, and his moon meteor sword lands in the snow, just like the fire moon meteor shrapnel that seems to lodge in the ice moon, the celestial equivalent of the dragon locked in ice which we spend two whole series outlining hopefully you remember that after this Wazor High's eye burns blue and it saw Wazor is now in possession of the fire of the gods thanks Wilsa Wilsa you'll want to thank her for that moon meteor sword she dropped too you're going to need that in the, uh, to go into the ice and fight the others which is basically what happens in the reverse reading as a matter of fact Weimar, having killed his love and opened his new Odin eye, lays down face-first in the snow and becomes the dragon locked in ice himself, matching the sword he got from a dying Wilsa, which is now also lying in the snow. So they're both going into the snow. In a moment, he'll awaken from the snow to fight the others, very like John rising from the snow when he's resurrected. Or as Patchface would say, when snow falls up. Falling up is literally what you see if you play a video of someone falling down in reverse. It's true. wilsa Wilson, meanwhile, has been slain, and she's given up a magic sword. Taking the events in reverse order, the next thing that happens is that Wilsa then climbs the tree. Just as it was in the forward reading when Will climbed the tree at the beginning of the chapter, this is easy to spot as Nissa-Nissa dying and going into the trees. Wilsa-Wilsa goes into the trees, and Wazor the Amazor goes into the ice. This is going well so far. Continuing to reverse the order of events, after Will climbs the tree, we have the others all stabbing Waymar in cold butchery. Now, I want to reverse the individual components of the fight, so let me first list them out as they appear in the forwards reading. Waymar shatters his sword against the sword of the other, then his eye is put out by a sword shard, then he sinks to his knees, then all the others close in and stab him as he falls in the snow. Will closes his eyes and hears their mocking laughter up in the tree, and then when he opens his eyes, the others are gone, meaning that he actually did not watch them walk away. So reversing that sequence, we have Will in the tree opening his eyes. He sees Waymar on his knees in the snow, with the others pressing close and stabbing him. As Waymar stands all the way up, the others back off. A tiny piece of sword flies out of his eye, And reassembles with the other shards and the hilt of the broken sword that is now in his hands. Now, thinking about this as astronomy, this is a fantastic depiction of the waking of the dragon locked in ice. I mean, it has everything. When Will opens his eyes, the others start off pressed close around Waymar, kind of like the shell of the ice moon. And then as he stands up, as the dragon locked in ice awakens, the others rush away from him. Like exploding ice moon meteor fragments Flying away from the newly cracked open ice moon This lines up perfectly with all the symbolic depictions of John's resurrection Which seem to involve the fall of the wall And the impending ice moon apocalypse Dead John in the ice cell is an exact parallel to the theoretical fire moon meteor lodged in the ice moon And Waymar is awakening here like a dragon locked in an ice moon Blowing off its ice shell It's pretty great pretty great. Just as with the forwards reading, we can also read this as Azor high's killing of Nissa Nissa and his invasion of the weirwood net somehow resulting in the creation of the others. In the reverse reading, Wazor has just killed Wilsa and sent her into the tree, and then when she opens her tree eyes, the others appear. So Weizor High has awakened to fight the others. Let's review this fight sequence with that in mind, instead of the astronomy layer. Okay, so we've got Azor high, He's just risen from the snow and he's on only one knee. And the others are already stabbing him. Yet he's undaunted and rises to his feet, causing the others to back off. It's almost like our newly resurrected warrior is showing the others that he can withstand their attacks. This might be the exact test that Weimar failed in the forwards reading. Note that the others all mocked Weimar after he took his first wound and showed that he bleeds hot red blood. Then the other Waymar is fighting ended their ritualistic duel by breaking his sword with a lazy parry and then they all butchered him. So this is Joe Magician's testing theory and combining it with my Green Zombies theory Joe and I both have come to the conclusion that the others were basically testing Waymar to see if he was in an invincible ice white like Cold Hands or John will become and that they dismissed him when he showed himself vulnerable. Now in the backwards reading The others stab Waymar as soon as he begins to rise, but then they back off as he rises further and proves himself invulnerable. Thus, then, Waymar casually reforges his broken sword before their eyes. That's right. Waymar appears to be reforging the notorious broken sword symbol that we see in The Last Hero and in so many echoes, such as Beric, Beric Dondarrion's ancestor, the Titan of Bravos, the sigil of the SOC Free Company known as the Second Sons, and so on. It's written into the wordplay of the sword Dawn, too, since Dawn is notorious for breaking. It happens every day, after all. Every time the sun rises, in fact. The idea of reforging the broken sword of destiny is certainly reminiscent of Tolkien and Aragorn's Narsil, and it, uh, which was reforged by Elrond in time for the last battle against Sauron, as was written in Prophecy. More specifically, Waymar's sword is white with frost before it breaks, Suggesting it as a great symbol of dawn, as the original ice. I'll also note that we've long surmised that the last hero might have reforged his original sword, since he snapped his first one from the cold, and yet emerges later chasing the white shadows with a sword of dragon steel. He either reforges the broken one, or he got a new one. And in this reverse reading, Waymar appears to reforge his sword. Pretty cool. So getting back to the backwards reading, Wazor High passes the test of the others, Rises, reforges his sword Let's test that thing out One of the others calls out with a mocking laugh His first parry is lazy And he gets one strike in on Wehzor High, But he again seems unaffected And then even fights with renewed vigor They fight to a draw And both of them hold their swords up on high To shine in the moonlight It's like some sort of salute Or a sign of a truce, perhaps And then the others go away that's right, they go back into the trees, back where they belong. They're probably happier now. Perhaps they're set free of whatever duty or obligation or hatred was keeping them clinging to their icy forms. Maybe now they've, uh, you know, some debt has been repaid to them, and they can rest at peace. Wazor High has saved the day. Perhaps he's said some sort of healing words, which would be the opposite of the killing words which summoned them. What would those words be? Was it for Robert? Maybe it was dance with me then Perhaps that's it The turtle god and the crab god Do have to sing a song to return the sun to the sky According to Royner Smith So maybe that's what the dancing is talking about Then coming back out of the trees It's his lost love Nissa Nissa Er, Wilsa Wilsa After the others melted back into the trees She offers a prayer of thanks to the old gods Then climbs down to reunite With her lost love Come here, love, I won't have you hiding under a bush, he says. And reunited, they head back to their home to live happily ever after. They even remembered to collect their ugly, earless stable boy who held their horses for them while they fought the war for the dawn. Given Garrod's speech about frostbite, which is really about ice transformation, this might be the last hero rescuing the stolen other baby on his way back to Winterfell. Now, that's that's one way to read the ending, the reverse reading, but... There's another less happy possibility. That's right. Waysor High fights the Others to a draw after passing their test and then becomes the master of the Others or a worshipper of the Others. Think about the Others perhaps catching dead John and resurrecting him under their ice magic. That's the template here. This is a new Knight's King now. So instead of reading the Others melting back into the dark of the wood as simply returning to the trees and being at peace... We could also interpret Wazor High, the Night King, sending out the others to invade Westeros. He's like giving them battle commands, and then they turn around and leave to go fuck shit up elsewhere, you know? For Robert, for the Horned Lord, they cry. That works too. We might even look at them stabbing Waymar in reverse, just like it was a videotape played backwards. It still looks like they're stabbing Waymar, but now the blood is flying into them as they do, instead of flying out of him. It's kind of like they're putting the blood back in Waymar. And that isn't crazy. Think about the others reanimating him or transforming him with their ice swords. Kind of like how the show depicts their version of Night's King getting transformed by a dragonglass blade being stabbed in his heart. Or how about this? Think about a group of others gathering in a circle around John's body, putting their ice swords into his body and transforming him into a new Night's King. In the forward's reading... We had this same observation, actually, that stabbing someone with a magic sword might be a way to resurrect them. We saw that when Waymar rose with a sword shard in his eye to choke Will, and also when I interpreted Will as using a broken fire of the godsword to raise Will like a magic wand. Similarly, just a minute ago, in my happy ending reverse reading, I ignored the fact that Will has those two symbolic deaths as he climbs the tree originally. First, his heart stopped while he was under the bush, and then the wind cut right through him as he started climbing, remember? Well, we could interpret this as Knight's King stabbing his resurrected corpse queen, as in impregnation. Which is, you know, a thing that we know did happen. It could also be Knight's King using a magic sword to raise Nissa Nissa from the dead and pull her spirit out of the tree. And since it's the wind cutting through Will as he climbs, we could even see this as a cold wind... ...as the magic sword, as a cold wind reanimating Nissa Nissa. That kind of makes sense. And instead of Wilson's heart stopping, as it did in the forwards reading... ...perhaps we should read this as a resurrection symbol. A heart that beats again. Even though whites don't have beating hearts, I know. But still, if you reverse the heart stopping to beat, it is a resurrection symbol. Which fits for uh, Will coming out of the tree. So, returning to Waymar in the backwards reading, let's run with this hypothesis that he's rising as a knight's king and commanding the others for a minute. With that being the case, we can then definitely see Will praying and climbing back down the tree to return to the knight's king figure as the corpse queen coming out of the haunted forest north of the wall to entrance knight's king. Together, they return south to Castle Black. Just like the official legend where Night's King chases and catches Night's Queen north of the wall, in the haunted forest perhaps, and then takes her back to the Fort to declare her his queen. So, which interpretation of the reverse reading is right? The happy ending, or the second option I just sketched out? Well, the answer is both. The happy ending shows us a very compelling possible version of the end of the last hero's journey, with him awakening as the dragon locked in ice and then sending the others back into the trees and, of course, setting free the trapped spirit of Nissa Nissa, which might be akin to shutting down the weirwood net, by the way, and that's a topic for future discussion. Uh, Then this is essentially a mirrored backwards version of the Waymar as the last hero confronting the others' interpretation of the forward's reading. That the second version, the unhappy ending, where resurrected Waymar is seen as the knight's king commanding the others instead of the last hero, well, that makes a lot of sense, as the story of knight's king and queen coming to power and unleashing the others. The way it mimics the official legend of knight's king finding his corpse queen north of the wall, and then returning to the Knight Fort, to rule together is really compelling, I have to say. And seeing him unleash the others... Lines up with my belief that Knight's King and Queen lived during the Long Night and created the very first others. So this is essentially a mirrored, backwards version of the mythical astronomy interpretation of the forwards reading. It's interesting to me that the Nissa Nissa turned Knight's Queen idea appears in both the forwards and the backwards reading, and each time the weirwoods are involved. Both times, it seems like some part of Nissa Nissa comes out of the tree and becomes Knight's Queen. I've always thought that Night's Queen has a tie to the Weirwoods, with Val's white Weirwood brooch being a major clue about that, so that part's easy for me to accept. And here's another interesting observation. The entire Last Hero story is one that occurs at the end of the Long Night drama play, which probably spans 13 years at a minimum, start to finish. That's opposed to the killing of Nissa Nissa and the destruction of the second moon, which would have happened at the beginning of the Long Night, years earlier. Additionally, if any magical babies were born, such as a child of Azoranissa or a stolen Night's Queen baby, a la the blood of the other theory, well, they'd need at least 13 years or more to grow up to be able to be old enough to play a last hero role, I would think. So here's the point. Following Waymar as the last hero shows us an event from the end of the Long Night sequence and foreshadows John's possible actions to end the new Long Night but the mythical astronomy readings, both forwards and backwards, show us the story of the beginning of the Long Night, when Azor high killed nyssa and the knight's king and queen came to power. That's an awful lot of Long Night information to hide in one prologue, but then that's kind of the thing that skilled authors like to do with prologues. And what Martin has done here is like a tour-de-force example of using a prologue to foreshadow as much as possible. So while reading the prologue forwards and backwards didn't exactly solve every mystery of the Long Night, it did provide us with some new clues and new possibilities to consider. And it seemed to further some of my newer ideas about Night's Queen and Nissanissa Nissa and the others. I'd love to hear from you guys as to what you make of these clues and of the interpretations that I've given here. And if you're thinking of looking for other start-back chapters that might, be, that might work well read backwards, well, it's too late. The myth heads are already all over it. Just kidding, of course. Well, the myth heads are already all over it, as I mentioned, but you can and should, of course, enjoy the fun of looking for these chapters yourself. The main thing is to look for language about starting back or reversing course, that kind of thing. We've already spotted a couple of other such chapters, such as Tyrion on the Royan, like we just talked about, and they all seem to have very strong and repeated language about starting back. So look for that, and then take a look at the backward sequence and see if it makes sense. With that, I will say... Happy hunting. Hey, guys. Before we head out, I've got a little post-recording, post-editing note for you. Um, upcoming shows this, uh, this Sunday, post-Thanksgiving Sunday, will be the Myth Head Fire and Blood Roundtable, which I'm calling What Happened to Septon Moon? That one's going to feature Aziz from History of Westeros, Amanda, Crowfood's daughter... Sanrixian, The Hand of the Dragon, of course, Archmaester Emma from the Red Mice at Play blog, and Melanie Lot 7 of the Melanie Lot 7 YouTube channel. It's going to be a very good time. We are all busily reading Fire and Blood this week. I'm uh, happy to be done audio editing so I can tear into it fully. And we're going to talk about all the mysterious things in the book, from Sept and Moon to what's up with those weird fiery worm things under the skin of that one girl and all kinds of other cool information about where Danny's dragons came from and some cool stuff about magic and the doom of Valyria and why dragon eggs are put in people's uh, cribs when they're young. All kinds of cool nuggets in fire and blood. So come join us this Sunday at 3 Eastern, the normal Starry Wisdom Sunday time. It's basically a first reaction round table. You know, we'll, we'll talk about some things in depth. We we're making some notes but obviously we've just read the book, so it'll be our first, first reactions. We'll definitely be taking a lot of questions from the chat. So come on and join us. It'll be a lot of fun. It's always nice to have Aziz on. So he's our honorary myth-head ringer. Everybody else is pretty much core myth-heads, so you know the deal. Thanks, everybody. hope you like this backwards prologue reading. And we will be doing a follow-up Q&A. Uh, we've definitely got some new ideas to talk about with this reverse reading as far as the endgame and Night's King and the connection between Nissa and Nissa and the Corpse Queen, a.k.a. Knight's Queen. So look for an announcement on that soon, but essentially we'll do our normal thing. We'll do a follow-up Q&A and just talk about all the ramifications and I'll answer Bronsteri's, the Wise Old Dragon's five detailed questions, which are always the highlight. So there you go, guys. Thanks for supporting me on Patreon, of course. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for sharing this with others, leaving reviews on iTunes or... Just upvoting or liking on YouTube, all that stuff is appreciated. Keeps the thing going and moving. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and I will see you on Sunday.